Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened uh, is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, If you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. It happened somewhere else a while ago and also somewhere else now ish several days ago what a great title for a show <laughs> i love I, I love how snappy and remem- and memorable that is yeah, look, that's look we can we, we can we can go in we can go into a, a, a tiny bit of pulling back the curtain which is that you can't do too many good intros because if you do too many good intros and everyone expects you to constantly have a good intro so every once in a while you have to just make you have, you have to lower the overall quality of the intro so that when you are truly desperate and have just been dragged out of bed at like 3 a.m. and you have to record a podcast, your sort of atonal noises will be considered normal. That's why I script all my intros. I, mm. But I'm just, I'm just, I'm just built yeah, different. Yeah, yes, you're built um, different. Exactly. So this is that could happen here. Uh, what, are we, what, what are we doing here today, Chris? Um, we are talking about, well, actually, admittedly, we, we, we had planned this episode before... Uh, this happened. Yeah, we, we yeah. planned this episode before the 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 referendum in Cuba about the new family code. But yeah, we are today. We're going to be talking about the the kind of bleak but sort of gets better history of homosexuality in Cuba and how things went from very bad to getting a lot better, and then also how a lot of American leftists like. 
picked up a version of the history of this that is just sort of nonsense. And here, here with us to talk about this is Andres Petiera, who is, well, doing, doing many things, one of which is studying for a PhD in Latin American history at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Andres, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, Max, I'm excited to talk to you about this. So, okay, I, I guess the, the place that I want to start is I want to go back to the 60s. Hmm. And I want to go back to something that I, I don't think a lot of people understand very well in terms of what happened in, it's just happened in, in various ways and over, over a lot of sort of these new sort of revolutionary socialist states, which is that you, you get this attempt to like form a, like a, a sort of like, like a, a new revolutionary subject. Sometimes it's, it's like, I mean, the Soviet one was like the new man. There, there are sort of different versions of this across the sort of various socialist revolutionary states. I guess I wanted to ask you to talk about how this kind of got really, really homophobic in Cuba, like pretty quickly. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, and, and, and one of the interesting parts about the story in Cuba is that it actually is in part imported from the USSR and ideas in the USSR. And that's actually one of the connections which in the literature isn't, in the academic literature at least, isn't always that well explored because Cubanists tend to be very insular. We don't really tend to <laughs> learn Russian. I'm, I'm, a, I'm kind of crazy. I actually am learning Russian, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, but no, so, so, um, you know, there was obviously lots of homophobia, lots of, you know, all like lots of op bigotry against LGBT people before 1959, not unlike the United States in the 1950s. Like you could live privately or maybe in certain safe spaces, you could live a kind of okay life, but you know, it was definitely a very marginalized position, lots of bigotry and lots of personal danger in addition to a lack of basic rights. Um, after 1959, uh, you know, you have this jettisoning, jettisoning of the Catholic Church and kind of religious reasons for being bigoted uh, with the coming of the revolution, which is a secular communist revolution. Um, but what, what ends up happening is they, uh, and this is something that Abel Sierra Madero's recent book uh, on, on, um, on these policies talks about a lot is this kind of attempt to remake Cuban men into the, the man that's needed for this communist society in the future. And as part of this, they engage in a sort of social hygiene. We don't want people who are lazy. We don't want people who are degenerate, but you know, bourgeois degeneracy, bah, you know, that kind of stuff. And within this, you know, a persecution of people who are seen as either out either as gay or at least as soft and they need to be made into real macho men for the revolution and um this started out in a very series of isolated things right you would have like uh virgilio pineda was who was a dramaturge he was um he was jailed uh and he basically he was being targeted because people wanted his house and so if he was jailed and his belongings were separated from him then like someone could get to keep his apartment. Like that seems to be why he was originally targeted. And he was detained twice for basically walking while gay. That's how basically what the incident boils down to he was walking it effeminately and people, and he was detained by the police. And he was freed because he had like, he was an important person. He was, you know, 
he had some protections. But then as the decade rolls on, as the 1960s roll on, that's like, that's 1960s, one year after the revolution. 1965, you have the creation of a series of forced labor camps. And there's not really any way to get around that. Um, we don't know exactly how many were sent there, um, but it seems to be in the thousands, maybe tens of thousands. We Again, we don't know because the government hasn't declassified that information. So it's still a conjecture, but it's not because people don't want to investigate the details. Um, and you, these are thousands and thousands of people who are being sent for all sorts of reasons. Jehovah's Witnesses, um, uh, people who listen to rock, people who are seen as hippies, uh, Elvis Preslianos, so Elvis Presleyans, so people who listen to <laughs> oh, no. Elvis Presley because that was seen as too effeminate and too Yankee. Um, and, and so they were sent to the camps and to do forced labor, but the the camps weren't just about forced labor. They were about remaking through labor these men into real men because hard labor, proletarian labor, would, you know, remake their spirits and their ethics. And uh, I mean, it's kind of not unlike what we're seeing in the 1960s in China, I think. Yeah, with, yeah. Yeah. Th yeah, th there's a very explicit, like, well, one of the things, well... Yeah, well, one of the things that is that's going on during the Cultural Revolution, also, yeah, it's like that they they have they have this sort of reeducation through labor thing that starts, and it gets it does get it, yeah, like I've seen conflicting accounts of the extent to which like people were directly targeted for being gay. I it definitely did happen, and there's a, yeah, and you you get a lot of this sort of same thing of like these people are like spiritually unpure, and like they have to be like reeducated, and they have to be sort of like turned into like proper like subjects and there's a lot of especially like there's a lot of sort of like there, there's a lot of people like being forced to hold signs that say sodomite and shit yeah Whoa. which is although fun, funnily enough and the, and the weird part about this is that like in the chinese case so the cultural revolution is like not a great time to be gay but there's also this thing it, it there's this thing kind of like it's kind of like like 1920s berlin where like there are, there is some really bad stuff that happens, but there's also this sort of like there's a kind of general political chaos, so you can get away with some stuff. To there's actually there's another campaign in China in it starts about 1983. Yeah, it's called the Strike Hard campaign. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, there's there's actually two Strike Hard campaigns. So there's there's one in the 80s that's supposed to be this campaign against like crime and stuff, and so like they target a bunch of people who are like supposed to be like social criminals and then that winds up being a lot of like there's just there are just mass arrests of gay people they're in prison for a very very long time um yeah under although that one's also interesting because it's like you have very similar kind of reasoning but it's like but it's in this sort of like dang like counter-revolutionary like phase where it's like instead of being instead of being a danger to the revolution they're like sort of a danger to like traditional chinese values which is <laughs> Interesting, oh, interesting and bleak yeah well because like because this is one of the things one of the things that happens in china right is it like in in you know there there is an attempt to sort of do more egalitarian like gender relations during, during the cultural revolution during the sort of like revolutionary period and then when dang takes power part of his thing is like no we're going back to traditional gender relations like all of this egalitarian stuff was a mistake and like this is part this is part of where the one child policy comes from but then also Whoa. you get a really homophobic crackdown in like 83 like like three or four years after sort of like He's well, he's so and actually weirdly almost exactly the same time that like the real sort of market reforms hit like like it's it's, it's like a year later is when the package that sort of like really brings the market back to China happens. It's, I don't it's it's a very weird 
yeah, we, we've kind of gotten, we've gotten very off topic, but it's, it's a very weird, interesting sort of like social flip that happens. Yeah, uh, for sure. And it definitely makes me want to read more about like China during this period. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's interesting, like, like the, the everything you were talking about earlier that is that like is similar to me is I've talked to like queer people from Vietnam and they have a very similar story about like, like, the, I mean, there was homophobia before, but they have a very similar story to the Cuban story about how like there is a sort of importation of like Soviet homophobia mm-hmm. and how that made everything like when that this starts happening in the eighties and it gets just like significantly worse. Yeah, no, it's, uh, and in Cuba, um, what's it called? Like the, the, the whole idea that this is a form of bourgeois degeneracy and the yeah. gayness, gayness is specifically bourgeois, uh, is like, was really surprising to me as I dug into this. Like, like there's comics, uh, I, I, in this thing I wrote, uh, I include a couple of them, but it's basically like, it's put up there with wanting to be in La Sociedad Libre, like free society in the West and, so the West is, it's like, it's almost like yeah. reactionary. I mean, it is reactionary, yeah. but I mean, it's like, it's, it's like a very weird, weird mirror of like far right discourse. Cause it's like the degeneracy of the West. Meanwhile, here we have masculine values. I mean, you even yeah. see that type of rhetoric with, we, we, we were talking about Alexander Dugan recently and he, he exposes a lot of that type of stuff as, as, as well as someone who is, you know, a fascist writer who's pulled on some of like the national Bolshevik type stuff before. Um, yeah, you can attack, uh, attack gayness as it's like a sign of liberalism in the West as like this, like almost like a bourgeois tendency. Yeah. I, I forget, I forget who it was. Someone, there was someone on Twitter who was talking about this. Like, it's, it's a very interesting thing. Like, yeah, like in, in, like in, in the U S like, I don't know, like being like for a very, very long time. It's still kind of now you get this versus like, like being gay, like is, is, you know, like being queer is a sign of like, you're a communist and you're like, you're like a degenerate communist, et cetera. And then you go to like Vietnam and it's like, oh yeah, this person's gay. They're a, they're, they're, they're a degenerate Western, like kind of revolutionary. And it's, 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 it's like, it's always the same. The, the, the actual sort of like homophobic thing is the same. It's just, this like the signs are flipped of like what yeah. the other is and who you can accuse them of sort of having the values of. I wonder if the unifying factor here is, and this is something I'm thinking about a lot because of Abel Sierra Madero's book, which is that uh, I mean queerness as a disease, yeah, definitely. an illness, and so like that, so it allows you to glomp onto it anything you don't like from your own ideological prism. So I I also wonder a lot about how nationalism plays into it, because Mm -hmm. that's one of the things that happens in a lot of these sort of revolutionary projects is like, yeah, like the the sort of ideal of the new man is sort of like a communist thing. But it's also like very specifically something that you get with like with nationalist revolutions where it's like, well, okay, so we like we 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 have to like like part of part of like the basis of our national identity is like we are these like incredibly sort of masculine hard men or whatever. And then this like. I don't know. I, I it, it it strikes me, it strikes me as interesting that like the 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 further that sort of nationalism becomes entangled in like these revolutionary projects, like the more you start to see this kind of stuff. Yeah, and and definitely part of this is is nationalism because it's it's not just homophobia in Cuba in this context in the sixties. It's not just homophobia for the sake of homophobia, though there is that too, but. It's it's also that 
I, I don't think Fidel Castro is entirely lying when he says that it was part of the need to mobilize as much of society as possible for the economy. What's happening in Cuba in the 1960s is basically the economy is going into a meltdown. Um, the econ economic policies that they're enacting have not been working. They've burned through any surplus they had in 1959, uh, including goodwill surpluses in a couple of respects. Uh, and I think that like some people point to like the new man and people will work for moral incentives, not material incentives, as just this naive thing. And then I think the most convincing counter argument is they didn't have anything else to incentivize people with. Yeah, people people make this. This, this is a, this is like basically there's an identical like argument that you get about the Cultural Revolution where like you start to see these like incentives are like Mao will like give you a mango or something or like you have these like pins that you get and, and like it, it could be like. Yeah, it's a, it's a very it's like the same thing of like you have these rewards that are sort of like, yeah, they're supposed to be sort of like spiritual almost, or sort of like spiritual ideological rewards, and then eventually like kind of just stops working because it turns out that's not actually a very good basis for yeah economic system. <laughs> uh, do, do you guys know the old joke about Che uh, Guevara when he was given uh, assigned to become the minister of the banks? I don't know the joke. I know the thing about like. He was my, my my vague memory is like the, the the story that I heard was like he signed his name like really sloppily on it because he was pissed off that like he had to put his face on money or something. But I have no idea if that's true. No, or that's, not. That, that part's actually true. He, did, he he hated money so much he refused to sign his actual name. He just signed his nickname as like <laughs> just to show his disdain for 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 uh, economics. But uh, at a meeting, the, the old joke goes, and this is something that Che apparently liked to tell as well, even if it's not necessarily true that at the meeting where they were deciding who's going to become the minister of what, uh, they said, uh, uh, who here is an economist? And he raises his hand and everyone goes, Che, but you're a doctor. You're not an economist. He says, oh, I thought you asked for a communist. <laughs> Economista, comunista. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, I mean, Che, and, and che, I think I, I've heard arguments. I'm not an expert on Che, but I've heard that he was actually pretty heavily influenced by China real, compared to USSR. He leaned closer to China. Yeah, that actually, that actually gets. I make. I think. I think. I guess that kind of makes sense given his sort of like, like the the, the way his military strategy seems to have worked, which is very, very much, like a lot closer to sort of like Maoist strategy than. Well, okay. I'm I'm gonna put Soviet strategy in quotation marks because oh my god, is there like, I, I, the. I, I I have a very negative, a very dim view of of so of of the military strategy of people who are of of like guerrilla organizations who are taking their military strategy directly from the Soviet Union. It's a lot of like we're going to build up one giant army in a place, and one day they're going to roll into the capital, and it's like this. Okay, this, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it's a strategy, yeah, yeah, yeah. That make that makes sense. Um, okay, yeah. Uh, reining reining myself in a little bit. We have these basically labor camps that gay people are getting put into. We have kind of a material basis for it, which is, and this is one of the things that like people actually will use as a defense of sort of like, it's like, well, we had to put these people in these camps because of our material conditions, which I think like, I, I feel like that makes it worse. Like, I feel like the fact <laughs> yeah. that there's a, there's a material basis for your homophobia, like makes it harder to get rid of and makes it like a more entrenched part of the system, which... I, I don't know. Bizarre defense to me. But yeah, um, can we talk a bit about like, okay, so like how, how did this actually end and to what extent did it end and did it sort of like have this like half-life afterwards? 
Sure. So, so these last for a couple of years. This is not like a flash in the pan, like, oops, our bad, kind of like, you know, six months in. This is like a series of multiple work camps across the province of Camagüey, which is in central Cuba, and they last for three years. And there's pushback during this period, domestic pushback, international pushback, like people have been complaining about it for a while. Exactly what the definitive thing that got them the, the UMAC closed specifically, those are the Unidades Militares de Ayuda a la Producción, military units to aid production. So the UMAC themselves, which were opened from 1965 to 1968, they do eventually get closed in 68. People are freed, you know, like, you know, the camps are closed and uh, people are sent home. And um, there are varying stories. I have looked through, like, tra tried to trace as many stories as I can get. Um, uh, and even, even people who, like, were participants have different stories. So, like, I remember Carlos Franchi, who was one of uh, a physician figure. He has one story that centers himself in, in the closure. Other stories say that it was the international pressure. Other stories say that it was the right, Writers and Artists Union, the official one, the state one, the UNIAC, which filed enough complaints and that convinced Fidel to get it closed down. Um, that anecdote is actually from Maddie Glass Iglesias's dad, Jose Iglesias, who wrote oh, about really? this. Oh, really? I didn't know he was his dad. Huh. Yeah, or oh, sorry, his grandfather, his <laughs> grandfather, okay. his communist grandfather. Um, but uh, he who actually who wrote a book about the 60s, he's, he's an interesting guy. Uh, but anyway, so the camps get closed one way or another, and I don't think we're gonna ever know the definitive answer until like there's actual declassification. But they're closed. But the thing is, um, while the camps get closed, we have reports from different people, including some of the sources that are used as apologia for the UMAP, saying, wait, 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 social disgrace units keep existing well into the early 1970s. And so we do have sporadic reports of things like this happening where seminarists are sent to religious people for, for being atheists, or sorry, for not being atheists. Uh, you know, gay people are being sent, other people, marihuaneros, so people who spoke to smoke pot, you know, anyone who's seen as like not conforming into the, this ideal new man, you're sent there and the labor is supposed to reform you. And that's that's a key part of this. It's not just labor as punishment, it's labor as ideological reform. There's even uh, uh, one of the people, some of the people in the one camp say that there was a sign that says, el trabajo os hará hombres, work will make you men. Jesus. Oh, <laughs> oh no. Yeah. <laughs> Like work will set you free. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, so so the, the camps do continue, seem to continue. And um, it's it definitely seems to be the case that, uh, you know, gay people do continue to be arrested for being gay, uh, even though the intensity of this does die down by the 1970s. There's something pretty bad that also happens in the 1970s, but it's a slightly different project. It's not as centered on forced labor. Yeah, and I guess so. The yeah, the th the thing that you wrote this piece about that I should actually probably mention that is one of the things we're talking about is you you wrote a very long piece about um called factually based, which is about sort of the, the the kind of mythology that developed in the U.S. about like how these camps were closed and the sort of like apologia around it, and a lot of this is based on 
Leslie Feinberg, which is depressing in a lot. So Leslie Feinberg, people who don't know, is like one of, one of the most important like trans authors ever. Um, wrote Stone Butch Blues, which is like if you've ever been in like any sort of like queer or trans scene, uh, you probably know about or possibly have read. And she wrote mm, not a great account of this. Yeah, do you want to talk a bit about what what this was and how people have sort of used it in different ways? Sure. So, like, I for years I heard like arguments from this book, and I didn't know they were from this. I just saw people sharing online online and thinking, where the hell are people getting this? This is not this is not true. And eventually I find out that it's, it dates back to this book called Rainbow Solidarity in Defense of Cuba by Leslie Feinberg. It was written um, mid to late uh, 2000s. Um, really it's not a book. It's a compilation of articles which Feinberg wrote for as part of the Lavender and Red series for this uh, world's uh, Workers' World newspaper, which is like this Marciite sect, which Feinberg yeah. seems to have been a part of. Um, real, real weirdos. Like, I, they, those people, like, they, they, they have positions that are like bizarre, even by the standards of like modern tankies. Like, they're, they're like, like the, 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 these are people who are like hardline on defending the derg in Ethiopia, which is like stuff that's weird enough that like most, most modern like ideal, like hardline ideological Stalinists don't know what this, like, don't even know what this is or won't defend it because it's like. Because, like, most Ethiopian Marxists are like, this was fucked. Like, it's, it's, yeah. Also, th this is, the other, the other thing about these guys is, so if you know about the, the PSL, the Party of Socialism and Liberation, they, they emerged from a split with the WWP. Yeah, because the, it was the WWP was too moderate or something. Yeah, right? I, 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 my, my, my memory of it was it was a split about whether, whether or not you should take money from North Korea. I don't know. I don't. I don't know if that's hundred percent true. That that that's my memory of the last time I read about it. So th 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 these are who these guys are. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. No. No. I mean, there, there, there's a reason that PSL and WWP seem to have very similar lines. Um. So. So anyway, so I'm, I'm. I finally get this book. I order it secondhand, so I'm not giving anyone royalties. Um. And I I get the book, and it starts like arguing. You know trying to, you know, defend the track record of the revolution. And really, it's like, basically, it seems that this book and a, an article that came out before any of Feinberg's articles, an article by John Hilson in the early 2000s, are kind of a response to how, as the kind of, like, how LGBT rights were treated in the mainstream in, like, the United States was shifting. There was, a, like, less homophobia movement towards more recognition of rights in the 2000s. And in that context, Cuba's, Cuba's track record on LGBT rights, which is pretty, pretty bad, you know, was getting hammered. And so they're writing this as a response to that. And Feinberg warns in the introduction, don't expect a criticism of Cuba in this book. It's factually based, but, you know, and I put it in quotes, factually based, but, uh, you know, it's, it's factually based, but it's, you know, this is, it's basically meant as counter propaganda to the criticisms. And the the section that everyone quotes, I mean, the book is the book isn't that long. I think it's like a hundred pages. I have it over here. Um, it's like a hundred pages long. It's all these different articles. Um, the section that most people quote is actually like two or three pages. 
It's this very short section on the UMAP. And uh, Feinberg talks about the UMAP and cites basically three people to talk about it. Basically, one, one of the sources is Ignacio eh, Ramonet, who is this foreign journalist who interviews Fidel and gave Fidel the opportunity to give these explanations and defenses of his policies, uh, where basically Fidel, uh, basic, Fidel defends it as a part of the necessity of mobilizing the entire country in, in the face of the crisis that it felt uh, that was facing in the 1960s from the United States. So it needed to mobilize everyone. It was part of mo economic mobilization. And it was almost a favor to gay people because they couldn't go into the military because there was too much homophobia in the military. So they almost did them a favor by giving them, sending them off to do labor that wasn't with the military in these nice little, you know, economic productive units. And then, you know, oh, there was some, use, uh, they, you know, there was some stuff, so we shut them down. Um, and this is before Fidel actually admitted that there was persecution of uh, LGBT people in Cuba under his watch, which comes in like 20, a 2010 interview. So this is like his version of things right before then. And that's what Feinberg cites. Another of, her, uh, of the sources is Cardinal, Ernesto Cardinal, who I'm, I'm, I'm happy to expand on him, but the short version is that Ernesto Cardinal is going around Cuba in 1970 and 1971 for two short trips. And he's just basically writing down everything and anything people tell him. Some of it's very critical, some of it's very supportive. He's not actually claiming anything is factual. He's saying, I am in Cuba. This is what people are telling me. Make up your own mind. Like that is his stance. But it's presented as this, uh, uh, like it's not critically analyzed at all. And it's these two separate stories. One of them is that 100 communist youth members infiltrated the camps on hearing that there were abuses there. And they wrote reports saying that there were abuses. So the camps were shut down. And then there's this separate story also sourced to Cardinal by Feinberg that Fidel personally infiltrates the camps incognito. And then there is this like a uh, guard who is going to like cut the cord on his ha hammock to wake him up and get him, force him to work. And Fidel revealed himself and, and, you know, almost, almost like, why dost thou persecute me, Saul kind of deal. Like very, it sounds like a very biblical story. So it's, it's a good yarn. But it's not doesn't sound very serious. And also the two stories kind of contradict each other. Why does Fidel have to infiltrate if the hundred communist youth members have gone, you know, or vice versa? You know, you don't. Yeah, like, it's really weird. Like, you know, like, why, why would there be both like both of them? You, you can't present both of them as true at the same time. Like they, they're, they're, they're mutually contradictory accounts of how this happens. Very, very weird. <laughs> Exactly. And, and, and in, in Cardinal, they're not even presented back to back. The, 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 the hundred communist youth members is literally a dude he saw on the street who told him this. It's a paragraph and that's it. Like we don't have any other context. The other story, the Fidel infiltrating is shared is slight, sounds slightly more credible if you really want to believe it. But then if you actually read into it, it's more like it doesn't, it also doesn't hold water. Yeah. It's a like a, a guy heard from another guy. Like it's it's yeah, he's he he's a guard. It is a guard narrating this, but he like he talks about what he saw un up until like half into the paragraph. And then the rest is clearly implied to be stuff stuff he heard about but wasn't actually present for. And Feinberg presents him as a witness of both. So anyway, so that's that's Feinberg's whole defense. Like basically, Fidel had no idea there were abuses, even though the very existence of the camps themselves were abuses. And then, but they were shut down and everything's hunky-dory 
you know, that's that's Feinberg's defense. And then, of course, the third thing is that she refers both citations to Filson, which I can get into in a second, but just I, I think part of the problem is that Feinberg didn't actually read Cardinal. Yeah, so Hilson, Hilson is uh, another activist. I'm not sure if he's LGBT. I'm not quite, like that, that part I'm less clear on, but he was another activist. He died very early in the 2000s, I think, um, from, from cancer. He, uh, but he wrote an article that cites Cardinal and cites both sections that Feinberg later cites and not more, not less. And I think what's what happened was that Feinberg basically goes to this article, which basically makes more or less makes the kind of arguments that Feinberg is already making in her, in her own work. But what what when when she sees things that seem to exculpate the Cuban government, she basically does copy paste and a little parenthesis to give credit to Hilson, and then moves on. Right? She doesn't actually read uh, Hilson. Hilson even like treats it a little more cautiously than Feinberg did, even though not sufficiently cautiously. And I think that that explains why, and at least this is a generous interpretation, Feinberg doesn't actually address the fact that in her own exculpatory source, there's talk of other camps. Like at the time, Cardinal is like, I'm yeah. going to the camps, I'm visiting the camps, there are camps here. Like, you know, so it doesn't, it doesn't make sense unless maybe Feinberg didn't read the book. Like just like copied and pasted and didn't really think about it. Yeah, or or just like went and found the one section that that was useful and then just read that part. Yeah. Which yeah, not not a great way to do history, as it turns out. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, so. I, I, I this is, I I I will do my one return to Marx moment uh, in this interview, which is to say <laughs> ruthless critique of all that exists, yeah. including <laughs> things that you generally support because. Otherwise, you wind up with this stuff. Yeah. And yeah. And my God, it's done the rounds. This thing has been going around and around on the internet for years and years. Yeah. And I guess we should also say that, like, yeah, and this is this is the thing that happens with like any any like every one of these like every one of the socialist countries we've been talking about. Like, you will get people who basically are like, like, ah, hey, look at this bad thing. Uh, we're gonna the people who are like. I don't know. You get, yeah, you get like Cuban right wingers who are like also unbelievably homophobic who suddenly like discover a passion for gay rights because oh, oh yeah. hey look at these abuses and it's like yeah it's I don't know it sucks it yeah and I, I mean I, I think it genuinely is a part of the reason why this version becomes like a memory that like like this for these sort of versions of the story which like don't have are not like really credible like be, be become sort of entrenched in the sort of like socialist memory of of this period in the US because it's like well okay so so on the, on the one hand you have a bunch of sort of like like incredible fanatical right wingers talking about what was going on and then you have like hey here's another story from a socialist and it's like well we're going to believe the socialist version and it's like well neither of these people like not like but both of these groups are like have an incredibly clear agenda going into what they're doing and so you have to sort of like actually sift through the stuff yourself otherwise you would wind up with very very weird and distorted histories yeah and and people just really want to believe it i mean i yeah. think that that's that's my conclusion like i when i was re re originally researching for this i was i was pissed like i was like 
this is, these are just not true. How could someone publish this? You know, I was really angry. And I kept trying to write that like a piece based on that. And I keep kept stopping. I'm like, this is not the right approach. This is not the right. Like I kept stopping myself. And then I, I finally was like, try to, okay, put myself in Feinberg's shoes. If I was, you know, really loved, you know, if I was like as enamored as Feinberg was of everyone and everything involved in the Cuban revolution. And at the same time, one a member of a persecuted group, right? You know, and I really wanted to square this circle, like, and I saw something that let me do that, I would probably also just glamp onto it and just not really tr try not think about it too much for the same reason, right? You want, you, you know, our defenses are low when it's something we want to believe. Yeah, and this is... The, uh, there, there is an enormous amount of stuff that just sort of people... I mean, just... Uh, like, yeah, like everyone has a bunch of stuff that they believe because they want to. They want it to be true. Like it's it's not like like we're 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 being hard on the socialists here, but like I don't know. Like this is why half the people who believe Q shit believe it, right? Like it's 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 the, yeah. it's, the, it's, the, it's the it's the thing they want to believe and the thing they sort of have to believe for the ideology to function. So it's like it's not like I don't know. Like it, it, it's it, it's it's not that much different than like. And Paul Wolfowitz, like, still thinking the Iraq War worked or something, right? Like, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's the thing you have to believe in order to not, like, have to sort of process the complications of what you're supporting. Yeah. So I, I think, yeah, I, the other thing I want to talk about sort of moving past this is about the stuff that's been happening recently and about how stuff got better in Cuba, because this is, I, like... This is this is one of the places where like things actually did genuinely get a lot better than like it was, and I want to talk a bit about like how that happened before we get to sort of the stuff that's been happening in the last like week or so. Yeah, um, and and you know I'm happy to get into happier territories. Yeah, because well. <laughs> it sucks. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, oh god, it's 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 definitely doomer stuff. To, to always uh, think about the 60s. Uh, the, um, so after the 60s, it did get pretty, it was pretty bad in the 1970s too. There was a purge of education and culture of anyone LGBT or suspected being LGBT because the idea is that they would recruit and influence and corrupt the minors and blah, 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 blah. Oh, where have we heard this before? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so uh. someone can probably do an article comparing the, the Culture and Education Congress in 71 in Cuba with, with, with uh, policies in the United States right now. Yeah. Um, and, but then things start to get better in the 1980s a little bit. Like the, the, the throttles pulled back. It's not great, but it's, you know, it's not terrible, as terrible as it was. And then from the late 1980s into the 1990s, we really see to see, get, start to see a sea change, both in terms of popular culture and in terms of, the, uh, of state policy. And of course, they're intertwined because the, who, who, who allows films to be put on in theaters yeah. the state they own all the theaters so um in terms of culture I actually know one of the people who had a, a play uh, played a key role in this which is Senel Paz and Senel Paz is this writer from a small town in Cuba a small village and he goes to Havana he's a, he's a writer and artist and he wrote this short story about this platonic relationship between a patriotic gay man and a patriotic Cuban heterosexual member of the communist youth who develop a respect for each other 
And it's like, even though like the gay man is alienated from state policies because of the persecution of LGBT people, he actually knows a lot more about history and culture in Cuba than the heterosexual guy who's rah-rah revolution, but doesn't actually know like all these important writers and artists and, and things like that that are also important for Cuban national identity. That, when that was first read in the Casa de las Américas, which is like this huge building for Cuban culture, people wept just openly. And then it was made into a movie called Fresas y Chocolate, so Strawberry and Chocolate. Uh, I can explain the title if you want, but bas it, it, basically it's the same story, it's expanded a bit because the original was a short story. And you can actually get it in the United States. I think uh, Paramount bought the rights for distribution. Fox may have bought the rights, I don't know. But it was came out in like 1993 and it was a big turning point for pub public perception, right? Um, I actually have a, a friend of mine was uh, who who knows who knows the author. He was stopped at his building, and this the wife of a colonel who lives in his building says, "My husband wants to see." You. My friend's like, "What would you make? What did I do?" <laughs> he goes up to the colonel's house. The colonel says, "Sit. You want coffee or anything?" The guy says, "My friend says no." And the colonel says, "Okay, explain to me this film that's come out recently because the, the colonel wasn't going to see it in theaters." Then my friend explains the movie. And guy says, no, 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 explain everything. So basically my friend does a scene by scene synopsis from memory. And after like an hour and change in this guy's house, the colonel's just sitting there not saying anything. He said, if I understood this and seen this earlier, things might've been different. Oh. It's like, like think, you know, it's, it, it's a huge turning point yeah. culturally. And then politically you also have Maria La Castro. So Maria La Castro is daughter of Raul Castro. So niece of Fidel. And she, from within the government, using her position of privilege, really starts to push for better LGBT policies towards LGBT people and better you know, laws and rights. And she, at the head of the CENESEX, which is the National Center for Sex Education, she really starts to spearhead an improvement. And we start to see in the 1990s and 2000s, not just a pulling back of persecution, at least official persecution, you know, you can still have informal persecution at the level of jobs, uh, but uh, you also start to see things like L trans people can have gender affirming surgery backed by the state, you know, free of cost, uh, like all these sorts of different protections and policies, like the Senesex will, if there's like a homophobic incident at a school, they can send out somebody to give a talk and say, this is why persecuting someone for their gender identity or their sexual orientation is wrong. But, but, but you really see a shift in the position of the state. And that's not just Mariela. I don't want to make it about Mariela, but behind her is of course, all these other, these LGBT people who would not be in the position to demand this for themselves, but she definitely spearheads this. And I think she deserves some merit for that. Yeah. It's interesting yeah. that they have like, that they have a level of sort of buy-in from the state, because I think uh, like that doesn't happen in like, China or Vietnam and like, you know, I mean like Vietnam, like there, there has actually been stuff there in the last like year where there's been a lot of real progress, but like they like literally one month ago, the government was like, we're going to declare homosexuality no longer like a mental illness. And like, that's sort of just like a month ago. Yeah. 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 Wow. And, th and there's only people a bit like queer people have been fighting for in Vietnam for like a long time. But like, and even then, like, there's this whole thing there where like people like you get, you get this, especially if you talk, if you talk to medical people in like, you talk to doctors 
you'll get this thing where like, well, okay, so there's like real, and the, the other thing this thing did is it, it, it outlawed conversion therapy. But if you talk to doctors about it, doctors are like, well, there are real gay, gay people and there are fake gay people. And the real gay people, you can't do conversion therapy on. But but this rule, but these guys are like, well, this ruling only covers the real gay people. It doesn't cover the fake gay people. You can still do conversion oh, therapy. On. Like, it's it's a disaster. <laughs> and like, I, I don't know. Like, it's, and like, China also has been really bleak. Like, I'm, I'm just going to, you're talking about a lot about sort of like the effect the media has on it. Um, I'm, I'm going to read this thing from uh, the Chinese General Rules for Television Drama Content Production from 2015, which... Okay, I've seen conflicting things, but I, I think this is still in effect. If, if if it's not still in effect, it was only reversed in, like, 2021. But I, I think it's still in effect, and also there have been new sort of guidelines that have been put out for movies that are about, like... I mean, specifically, there's stuff where, like, you, you can't have gay men in movies, you can't have men that are too effeminate in movies, like, you can't have men that look like they're cross-dressing in movies. I'm, I'm going to read this thing from the TV code. Um, So this is, this is stuff that it says is, is explicitly is not to be shown. Content which depicts or portrays unnatural sexual relations and actions, such as incest, homosexuality, perversion, sexual harassment, sexual assault, sexual violence, etc. Uh, this is provision, that's provision two, provision three. Content which portrays and promulgates unhealthy perspectives on marriage and married love, such as, ex- such as extramarital love, one night stands, free love, etc. This sorry, is from 2015. Sorry, sorry, try guys, not allowed. <laughs> yeah, no, like, it's like, it's... <laughs> Oh, oh god yeah i'm, I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna do a try guys joke every episode for all of oh, eternity god. now oh, <laughs> never, it's never kicking you old. off the recording yeah. the, 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 the the french are surely complaining that the ban on cheating on your wife is a, a imposition on their culture yeah definitely <laughs> that's actually extremely racist against the french <laughs> I there simply doesn't mention. I I was gonna make a I was gonna make a a, a a French film pedophilia joke, but it doesn't actually ban. It bans incest, but it doesn't actually yeah. ban. Like the, I mean, I, th- I think the, 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 the thing curious. the thing on the thing on being um, pedophile. I think I think is in a different section of the code that I didn't copy here, but who knows? Whew, yeah, so and I I think part of what was going on there was like yeah, like there wasn't like I mean th- things have gotten like it. it the the law that was being used to arrest like gay people in China like was they abolished it in the nineties but like and, and like there was a culture shift but it it didn't like the the state decided it was gonna do the same thing the U S state which is, is doing which is like do this sort of backlash to it and it it didn't like that kind of stuff didn't happen which is I think really bleak mm-hmm. but also like is genuinely a, a thing that like like yeah like the good 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 for good for the Cuban people good for Cuba like. Glad, glad you all are doing this. this no, this yeah, is, major, yeah, because like major win. Yeah, because like, cause, you know, like you can you can see what happens when like this doesn't happen, which is all of this bullshit that exists in a lot of the other sort of post-Soviet like or post-communist countries. Yeah, I I think that Cuba would have done it eventually, but I think that Mariela definitely just sped it along. Yeah, and like there's def- there's definitely a problem of a cult of Mariela. With, like abroad, where it's like all all thanks be great be due to Mariella. It's like c- completely cuts out all the people behind her, you know, who also been like, please ask ask your uncle <laughs> to do this for me. I got to get married someday. Uh, but uh, you know, but at the same time, I think we can't cut her out of the story. Yeah. Either. So. Yeah, and and that gets us to, well, I guess I guess you start in 2019 first. But yeah, the the, the new family code that's passed, which. Also, I, I, I do want to mention this because I don't think, like, people don't seem to know this when I tell them about this, about 
Neither China nor Vietnam is gay. In in neither China nor Vietnam is gay marriage legal. And there's a lot of people who think that the repeal that happened in Vietnam legalized gay marriage, and that's not what happened. Like the thing that it did is, you will no longer be arrested for having your own unofficial marriage, which is a thing that could happen. Oh, Jesus! But this is this this is this is not this is not the thing that is happening in Cuba. Like, I I see this with people a lot, where like something good will happen in Cuba, and people will project it onto like china and it's like that's no like they're not the same place like don't 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 do this with this stuff don't project the cuban medical system onto the chinese medical system they're not the same please stop yeah. uh <laughs> yeah 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 okay but yeah go, going on to stuff that's good and the stuff but on also the sort of like yeah so can we talk a bit about like what talk about like the the the, the 2019 referendum and the sort of like the the stuff about sort of so how to explain this? Like the 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 story of how the stuff that's happening now didn't happen in 2019. Yeah, so when this referendum was happening. Yeah, yeah, so so when the in in the the 2010s, the Raul Castro who, who took over after Fidel, um, he began using a bunch of referendums to decide major things, major policy changes, and using referendums kind of just to like because like the. Because the National Assembly is basically a rubber stamp committee, like referendums really took to the fore as a way to like channelize uh, channel support and you know show popular acquiescence to major changes among them the Constitution. So uh, as part of the con- they did a draft Constitution, they debated it. Uh, there were debates all around the country at local levels in 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 uh, on, in neighborhoods and workplaces, and people gave feedback. The um, marriage equality and 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 things connected to it, which we can get into in a second. These were part of, for the most part, part of the 2019 Constitution, but there was a lot of pushback. Um, like, obviously, if, if if the state has been repressing LGBT people for decades, that part of their coalition just doesn't stop overnight. Does yeah. doesn't just stop being bigoted overnight because of you know a change in policy. So, you know, it wasn't just that the religious right, like evangelicals, there are a lot of evangelicals in, in Cuba right now. There's a growing evangelical population, oh, I'm sorry God. to say. Yeah, backed by <sighs> US evangelical money. Oh, God. Uh, no, please, repressing the wrong people. Oh. <laughs> and and then there's the, the, the Catholic right, obviously, you know, much more, you know, discreetly, but still very, you know, against this. Uh, and there was enough pushback that the government was worried that I don't know if they were worried that the constitu- the referendum would fail entirely, but it did seem like they were worried that it would lower the voting percentage in favor of the new constitution enough that it would hurt the new constitution's legitimacy or something. So they decided mm-hmm. to carve off the more controversial parts about the, uh, the LGBT rights and basically carve them off push them into a referendum on the family code, which so all the new laws based on the new constitution, all the new laws governing family law and punt that down the road indefinitely. And so what's happening now, this what just happened is the culmination of this referendum that they punted down the road in 2019. The original, the 2019 constitution was passed with something like 90% approval. Uh, and, and this was just kind of left on the to-do list. And then with the current crisis in Cuba, I mean, like there's a couple there's a couple ways to read this, but I think one of the easy, most obvious is that uh, the Cuban government needed a win, 
And this was an easy win they could actually deliver in an age of extreme scarcity and rolling blackouts. It's like, we can just at least deliver on this promise. And they did. So. Yeah, and I guess, so can we talk a bit about like, like what, 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 what actually is in the new code and what, like what, what it does? Yeah, so it, it, does, it does a bunch of pretty cool things. Uh, it legalizes same-sex marriage, which is great for a lot of people. Yeah. Not just because, you know, not, not just because of the principle of it, but also things like, okay, you're separating from your partner, but everything is under your partner's name. You're not never legally married. What are your rights? Bah, 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 bah. So you like for, for separation, for immigration, if you're trying to immigrate and you're not married to your spouse, you know, you know, if you're trying to inheritance, all these kinds of things, you know, this is going to be, this is like important in con concrete material ways. Uh, it legalizes adoption by same-sex couples, which is also pretty cool. Yeah, uh, that was not allowed this at is all. Good. Before. Sucks that it wasn't before. <laughs> glad, 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 glad you can now do that. That that's good. Hopefully, we can still continue to do that here for <laughs> like a few more years at least. Like, yeah. Uh. Um, it legalizes surrogacy, and same-sex couples can ben can benefit from can use surrogacy now, uh, although on a not-for-profit basis. And that's that's specific. Uh, I, I'm not an expert on whether or not it is the best policy to have it as only not for profit. Um, I, I know that there's a lot of debate over it, but the law says not for profit only for surrogacy. But that's still another option for people in addition to adoption. Uh, it expands civil unions to be much more inclusive. They're called uniones de hecho in Spanish. So now they are much more inclusive and also, you know, you know, you you don't have to get married. You can get a civil union if you yeah, want. Can, can we explain what that is? Because that was a th like th there there was a whole thing in the U.S. like in the in the two thousands about like oh like you could do civil like there, there was a period where it was like there were a lot of places you could get civil unions but you couldn't get married. So can you explain what a civil union is? Because I think that's a thing that like a lot of our audience probably isn't gonna like remember when that was a thing anyone talked about. Sure. I mean, like, I'm, I'm, I'm not a lawyer. So yeah. <laughs> my, my understanding is it is, it is a way to recognize your, your basically partners. You have some rights and it helps with some issues of like, I think it also varies country to country, but it's basically like yeah. a step down from the full commitment of marriage is my understanding. Um, <laughs> sorry that's less, less no yeah no like that that was that was my understanding of it it was like like in the u.s it was this whole thing of like well you can have civil unions so you don't need to be married and then people were like no because it doesn't give you it doesn't give you the sort of full suite of like right rights and stuff but it gives you some things which I'm, I'm, gl I'm glad i'm glad he was doing like no you can do both of these things and then wasn't there something about like like yeah, there there were changes to like what, like ch changes to what can be recognized as a family. That is the part that I've seen the most. Like, I have read a bunch about this, and I'm st I still feel like this is something that's not, it's not entirely clear what this is going to look like in practice. So basically, it expands. The, the what the legal definition of what can constitute as a family unit uh, to be more focused, less focused on blood ties and more focused on affective ties. So love, affection, you know, caring for each other. Uh, so that, for example, let's say 
I, I think like the, the big hypothetical that was held up was like grandparents. So like if the parents aren't around, but in practice, these people are the ones that raise you, you know, the, you know, for, for, for legal stuff that has to do with kids and family law, like we can consider this a family unit is my understanding. It's still really murky and it's not really helping me feel like, like it, I've, the, the, the re things I've read on this also seem to be kind of like, like, here's an explanation. I'm like, that, that doesn't really help me understand this at all. <laughs> yeah. So it, it is a little, and, and, and I've seen people running about this as like, Cuban government has abolished the family. Hooray. And I'm like, did it? <laughs> yeah. It, from everything I've read about it, it seems like, it's not that they've abolished the family, it's that they've allowed you to change what a family is in the, like, in the eyes of the state, which is not the same thing. Right, right. Like, I... It, it's like giving you more wiggle room. Yeah. Um, is my understanding. But again, it's one of those things where I feel like I, everyone who I've seen running with it has run with a completely different, very triumphalist explanation that are sometimes mutually contradictory. And I'm like, I'd like to see what this actually looks like in practice and yeah. like seeing the effects better uh, because it's, it's an under discussed dynamic of it because like what most people abroad were looking at was like same sex marriage. So like this, so that was less discussed, but uh, I mean, it seems to be, Positive. The thing that the thing that uh, caused more controversy on the island was there was a shift to patria potestad, which is uh, father paternal rights, basically parental rights, right? And um, basically, the idea is to switch the child from merely being a subject of their parents' will. In theory, they have more rights and are a subject on their own, even if they're just a kid. Uh, That's trying to, genuinely cool. Yeah, to like prevent things like corporal punishment and things like that. You can't beat yeah. your kids, uh, which also seems like a, a positive change. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, would 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 love more of that in the U.S. to just like absolutely clobber the like parental rights people because oh my fucking, they are they are yeah. going to kill us all. <laughs> yeah, and I mean the the funny thing is like every time that there's a leftist movement, uh, the 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 thing is always they're coming for your kids and then. Like, oh god, yeah. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> no, yeah, like it's the right has one thing, and it's the yeah. same thing every time. Yeah, uh, uh, those are the kind of the big things that the referendum does. The one other thing I wanted to talk about was like, mm -hmm. I okay, so there was a a thing of okay, so like obviously it, it passed with like sixty seven percent of the vote, I think. Um. Something like that, like basically two thirds yeah. of the vote. Um, yeah. and I want to talk a bit about like, okay, so something I saw. Okay, so like, okay, so you have the people who voted against it because they're Christian and they suck. Um, and the other people who are just homophobic, I non Christian homophobes, non Christian homophobes. But then there was also like something that I saw that was like, like people in opposition groups being like, we're going to vote against this as like a vote against the government. Which, yeah. yeah, can we explain what that was about? Because that's, yeah. Sure. I, and, and I think that you also have a division there between the people who are like, it's really against the government, but really it's against the, the changes yeah, that yeah. the law brought about. <laughs> like, I, I think that even there it's a mixed bag of, of both. But um, basically the idea was that um, by approving this, 
uh, and voting in favor of something cooked up by the government, that they were giving credence to the government and legitimacy to the government. Uh, ergo, the only moral position was either abstention or voting no. Uh, and so, I mean, again, a lot of it's mixed up with, they also really, as a rule, did not like the content of the law. Yeah. Uh, it, I mean, the, part of the thing is like, it's the, the, the opposition is in this weird space right now where they have like the more historical branch, which is, you have like a historical branch that is like rapidly far right. Uh, and then you have, there's a lot of overlap with like Catholic right in there. Uh, and the Catholic far right in there, as I'm sure you understand what that means. Yeah. Uh, but <sighs> but uh, but then you also have a a growing prominent liberal contingent, um, who speaks better, not just doesn't just put on a better face for international audiences, but also puts on a better face for Cuban audiences. Um, and because like Cuba is not a far right wing society. Like, for example, abortion, like I, I spoke to a right wing Cuban who left, who's like, yeah, I, I like Ben Shapiro and a lot of what he says, but I don't get his obsession with abortion. That's a woman's right. Like, that's just so <laughs> weird to me. It, it, it's because like Cubans aren't, aren't necessarily super religious as well, which is a big part of it. Uh, and so into the fetus and all that. Uh, <laughs> so the the so so that's so they're, they're kind of like a but like it's like cats and dogs tied into a sack. So there's like, you have these different opposition figures. And I think that the really right wing ones know that they can't be as openly homophobic as they used to be. And so they need to couch it in a different way. I think it's not just that. I don't want to reduce everyone to that, but I do think that's a huge part of that project. And then in addition to that, just people who are like, anything that the government does is bad because they're accelerationists. Which is another big part of the opposition. Oh direction. no! Why is every Why is everybody an accelerationist now? This is the worst. <laughs> I, I, I long I wonder, for the I days. I wonder why everyone's an accelerationist. I, I wonder look, if there's I wonder if there's material realities that are contributing I, I, to that to the. I, I am going to take a time machine and I am going to hunt down Nick Land and I am going to stop the GRU from forming and no one will ever know what accelerationism that's is. Not, you know that's not true. Without Nick Land, someone else would come up with with accelerationism. It's a very but, easy uh, thing to think of yeah, but, but, okay, considering I mean, our to, current to be fair, reality. To, to, to be fair to Nick Land, at, at, le at least his version of accelerationism had to do with like at least I, it was uh, everyone. Silly. Well, yeah, well, I mean, look, like the, the, the version of accelerationism where, like, like cap capitalism is a human machine that's also a god that only exists in, but that exists continuously in potentia, and uh, all, all, all of you, like the, the the market being irresistible because uh, it, because 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 it, it, it like the market itself is a thinking machine. That uh, th this is at least funny. Yeah, the, yeah, the exactly. modern stuff is. I God, this is the, yeah. like they. I, I, I long for the days where there was an argument where people where people would do the modern accelerationist thing, and like the Landians would go, no, 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 that's not what accelerationism is. <laughs> <sighs> this is the. I hate this reality. It's the worst. Yeah. <laughs> so that's I mean, like, I, I think I think a good chunk of the opposition movement can be described as Alex accelerationist. It's not oh, just. Great. It's not just accelerationists. But I do think a lot of them are in there. Any improvement to anything is helping the government. That's why they support the embargo. That's why they don't want any improvement on any laws. They want things to be as dysfunctional as possible because they think that like the government is incapable of actually getting doing better. And to the extent that it becomes better and stronger, it's just going to be more repressive. Ergo, the solution is 
bring the country to a standstill so there will be a, a general strike and overthrow the government. That's their plan, I think. That seems like a terrible plan. I'm just going to gonna Especially- throw that out there. That's that... <laughs> Like I, I get at that at that point, like why do why not just become a terrorist? Like I don't know, like because stop, that's because like, that's more scary. That, yeah, that, that that's the actual reason. Yeah, it's, like, it's, like, it's honestly, like yeah, like, it's, it's people, it's pe- people, pe- people who are too cowardly to like kill someone with their own bombs, so they they kill people by trying to get sanctions through instead, which is like. <sighs> no, although there have there have been there have been turrets. There was the yeah, um, yeah. Carriles, He blew up a put a frag bomb in a Cuban hotel and killed a Cuban uh, an Italian tourist. Um, yeah, uh, uh, actually, actually, my, my my dad was working on the extradition case to get him extradited to Venezuela <laughs> over that. Uh, oh, he was boy. yeah. He's the, he also committed the first act. So a Cuban a CIA trained. Cuban exile committed the first act of terrorism involving civil aviation in the Western Hemisphere in ah. <laughs> That's pretty late. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe it was just people were just doing it in, and maybe it was just a European thing, and then the CIA was like, what if we bring this <laughs> here? It's like, no, sure, surely this will work better for us than it worked for every other group who's hijacked a plane in the 1970s. Oh, yeah. God. <laughs> This sucks. I hope I hope those guys have a bad time, and that, yeah, yeah. Well, Posada <sighs> at least kicked it a couple years ago. Oh, thank God. Okay, hey, <laughs> rest rest in piss. Official official pod opinion. Doing we're doing the crabs. Like, <laughs> God, these people suck. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I guess. Do you have anything else that you want to talk about, or? Uh, I I think that's it. Just thanks a lot for having me on. It was it was yeah. great to be on. Thanks thanks for coming on. Uh, yeah, uh, queer rights good. Not doing them bad. Uh, <laughs> don't kill people with sanctions. Yeah, definitely. D- d- the embargo has been an utter failure. At everything yeah, other than get increasing human misery. Yeah, yeah. fuck that. <laughs> like, I uh, oh. yeah. And I guess um yeah. One last thing. Do do you have uh do you have stuff you want to plug? Oh, sure. Uh, that's that's a very good and generous point. Um, so you can find me on Twitter at at A.S. Peritera, P as in Peter, E-R, T as in Tom, I-E-R-R-A. I also have a podcast, which is linked in my bio. Uh, I'm doing a history of Cuba um, as an academic, but writing for a more popular audience. And we're going way, we start with the indigenous people. We don't just jump over them. And we're I'm currently working on Columbus. And then... Uh, Let's see. And I also have a substack called Scene Embargo. S-I-N and then the word embargo. So I yeah. Yeah. And that that's without embargo if I'm my, my yeah, without Spanish em- is okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it means without embargo, but it also sounds like Sin Embargo, which is I feel mm, like a, I yeah. would be a cool band name. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, well, we will, we will we will link to stuff and we will link to that in the description. And yeah, thank you for joining us. This this has been it could happen here. Um, yeah, make bad things happen to homophobes and get good things to happen. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating Pride and the queer community all year 
Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ah, hello and welcome to It Could Happen Here. Today it's just me because it's early and I live on the West Coast. And uh, today we are talking about uh, America's drug problem. And I'm joined by David Mitchell from Patients for Affordable Drugs. And we're going to talk about the cost of medicines, 
why it's so astronomically high, why I sometimes go to Mexico to buy my insulin, and why you probably know someone who can't afford the medicines they need to survive or maybe thrive. Um, so David, uh, can you explain a little bit about, first, if you'd like to introduce yourself and explain what Patients for Affordable Drugs does and the role that you play there, that would be wonderful. I am the founder and president of Patients for Affordable Drugs. We're the only national patient organization that focuses exclusively on policies to lower drug prices. We're independent, we're bipartisan, we don't take money from any organizations that profit from the development or distribution of prescription drugs. We do two main things. We uh, collect patients' stories and we amplify those stories to policymakers and elected officials so we can bring home the human impact of ridiculously high drug prices on the people in the United States. And the second thing is that we recruit and train patients to be uh, advocates. Uh, we teach them about the policies, give them coaching on presentation, uh, and uh, prepare them to go tell their story and deal directly with the people who set policy in this country. And so we've had patients uh, testify in state legislatures all over the country. Uh, we've had patients testify in Congress on many occasions. Just last week, one of our patients who happens to be a type 1 diabetic uh, introduced the president of the United States in the Rose Garden in a speech the president made uh, talking about the new Inflation Reduction Act and how it's going to help lower drug prices and out-of-pocket costs for people. So that, that's our work. I do this work because I'm a patient. I have an incurable blood cancer. It's called multiple myeloma. It's incurable. That's not good, but it's treatable for some period of time with very expensive drugs. Right now, my oncologists have me on a four-drug combination uh, that carries a list price of more than $900,000 a year. Jesus Christ. The, these drugs are literally keeping me alive, and I'm very grateful to have them, but they're wildly overpriced. Uh, and the the drug industry, drug companies exploit uh, patients everywhere in the world, but especially here in the United States. They use us as a piggy bank uh, to hit their targets for executive bonuses, to trigger executive bonuses, and to hit profit targets for their shareholders. Uh, and uh, the unfairness uh, is not acceptable. Anyway, when I got diagnosed and suddenly I found myself with a disease uh, through no fault of my own, they required very expensive drugs. I began this journey and the journey taught me a fundamental point, And that is that drugs don't work if people can't afford them. And so I retired and uh, decided to devote myself uh, as a patient uh, to uh, trying to change a system in this country that really is built to benefit the people who profit from it at the expense of the people it's supposed to serve. And I work for free as a volunteer, and I've been doing it for six years. 
That's great. Yeah, that's a. I'm, I'm sorry to hear about your, your own wealth, but I think it's a very admirable thing you've done. So, David, can you explain? Because it does. Yeah, you know, I think people sometimes, maybe if they've only lived in the U.S., they might not realize, or uh, perhaps they're extremely aware. Uh, why are medicines so? Why can I travel 16 miles, mm. right? Go across the border, uh, flash my passport at someone, uh, have a bunch of scans taken, right? Go through a bunch of machines, and then buy medicines for less than half the price on any given day. Why? Why is it like that? It's like that because we are the only developed nation in the world that lets drug companies dictate the prices of brand name drugs to the to their citizens. Every other developed country in the world negotiates on behalf of their citizens directly with the drug companies to get a better deal. Uh, and we don't do that. Uh, the net result is that Americans are paying almost four times what other wealthy nations pay for the exact same brand name drugs. And the impact is that three out of 10 Americans report that they are not able to take their medications as directed because of the cost. Uh, this has a direct impact on health. Uh, and, you know, I, I understand that you are a type one and that you're insulin dependent. And so you know the struggles and the high prices of insulin. But we've had five people confirmed dead because they tried to ration their insulin in the United States of America. This happens because we grant the drug companies this incredible market power and we let them dictate the prices to us, prices that are completely unjustified uh, uh, and patients suffer financially and worse uh, because of their health uh, due to these high prices. Yeah, I think it's just heartbreaking, the stuff. Like, And I've known people who have died from from lack of access to insulin and it's, it's just, it's pretty horrific stuff. Um, can you explain, because let's get into that lack of justification, right? There's ways that a drug, the co things that make up the cost of a drug would be the research and development of the drug, uh, the distribution of the drug, and the marketing of the drug, um, and maybe something else I'm missing. But can you explain, like, how do we arrive at this insane price for insulin, which was synthesized in a lab more than 100 years ago? Like, what... What makes up that price structure and how much would it actually cost to uh, produce that insulin if, if we stripped away some of those things? Well, you're asking a very intelligent question about what should exist but doesn't. And that is a framework to arrive at an appropriate price that will provide a reasonable return to the drug maker and ensure that drugs are affordable and accessible for the people who need them. We don't have a system like that. The drug companies charge as much as they think they can get away with, period. This was shown just last year when one of the drug companies named Biogen tried to bring a drug to market for Alzheimer's and proposed to sell it at $56,000, even though there was no proof it worked. And after it got big pushback and no one wanted to pay for it, the government, private employers, uh, 
they cut the price to $28,000. Now, was it worth 56000 If it wasn't, then why didn't you just price it at 28000 to begin with? Why? Because they thought they could get away with $56,000 a year for this drug. Now, where insulin is concerned, it's very unfortunate. There is an insulin cartel. Three companies control 90% of the global insulin market in the world and here in the United States as well. And it's some people would say correctly, you know, you have to call it correctly, an oligopoly, a small number of producers and sellers who are controlling the market. Uh, And what happens as a result of that problem? Well, insulin costs roughly $10 a vial to produce. It sells for more than $300 a vial. It has gone up in price more than 600% in the last 20 years because of this cartel that literally controls the insulin supply in the world. I'll give you another example. I take a drug. It's called, for my cancer, it's called Pomalist. It's an oral drug uh, that I get under Medicare Part D. Pomalist costs less than $1 per capsule to make. It sells for almost $1,000 per capsule. Jesus Christ. Now, you cannot justify, you cannot tell me that there's justification for a 1,000% margin. It's just ridiculous. But because we do not use our power, our market power, to negotiate for a better deal, um, they can get away with it. And they do. And there, there are many examples of this. Now, all of that is about to change with some new legislation that has been enacted into law. It's about to start to change. I should be more precise. Um, uh, And we can talk about that. Yeah, let's talk about that. One thing I want to get into first, I think, is this. I think sometimes we have this impression, certainly with new and novel compounds, that um, there's this massive lab and it's entirely funded by the money that's made from selling other drugs. And in that lab, people are just all day cooking up cures to the Ebola virus or these various very deadly conditions. Um, so I wanted to explain, I wanted you to explain like, who pays for the R&D for the most part and who decides what that R&D focuses on? Because I think those are both very important topics. Yeah. Well, it turns out that every single drug approved by the FDA from 2010 to 2019, every one was based on, in some part, on science, paid for by taxpayers through the National Institutes of Health, uh, another organization in the government called BARDA, and another organization in the government called DARPA. DARPA is who invented the internet, for example, and GPS. Um, uh, we pay taxpayers billions of dollars every year to finance basic scientific research that lays the foundation for all these drugs. And when a drug company sees a drug that uh, has promise, uh, it will try and acquire from the NIH or the other government agencies that do this work, fund this work, 
the intellectual property, uh, and then they'll finish the job of uh, running um, late-stage clinical trials and going through the process of gaining FDA approval. I'm going to say a couple of things here that are critically important to understand to try and uh, illustrate this. The drug industry tries tries to take credit for the mRNA vaccines that were developed to fight COVID-19. And these are the vaccines that are uh, marketed by Pfizer and its partner in Europe, BioNTech, and by Moderna here in the United States. Um, It turns out that in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, drug companies weren't investing in vaccines because it didn't produce, they didn't produce a big return. So the federal government invested through NIH, DARPA, and BARDA, all of them, to uh, develop the technology that we now call mRNA. So that when the virus hit, that technology was ready for Moderna and Pfizer to run with. But they didn't make the big investment. We did. We being taxpayers. Uh, to get that technology uh, ready to go. And in the case of Moderna, we paid for everything. And I'm not exaggerating. They had never produced a drug. So we stood up manufacturing uh, capacity for them. We paid for their late-stage clinical trials. And we signed advanced purchase agreements to completely de-risk the enterprise. But they will tell you that they saved us. It's not true. We saved ourselves. There's a reason that the president, who cares deeply about trying to reduce the death toll from cancer, has to have this new organization called uh, ARPA-H, which is going to be funded with billions of dollars, to try and do something to accelerate cancer research. Why Why do we have to pay for that? Because the drug companies will not pay for the high-risk, early-stage research that uh, goes into uh, getting really breakthrough new drugs uh, to market. So who who does this? Who pays for it? By and large, taxpayers are underpinning all the basic science. Drug companies are taking drugs that show promise, acquiring the intellectual property, and then charging whatever they want for the drugs. Um, So that's our system in the United States of America. It's completely screwed up. Uh, We need to have a process more like what you described in posing this question, which is, well, shouldn't we look at what the government invested, what the company invested? Uh, You know, what would be what does it cost to manufacture the drug and distribute the drug and all of that, and then arrive at a price that provides a fair return uh, for investment and risk to the drug company, but not any price they want to dictate. That's what we have now, is they get the drug from us and they get to dictate the price. We don't have a system like the one you uh, referenced. 
Yeah, and it's it's much to our detriment, right? And I was that it's interesting. You talked about how like this profit driven model tends to focus on certain conditions and not others. And I know that you focus mainly on the United States, but perhaps we could get into a little bit what that means for neglected diseases on a global scale, right? How looking at only patients who can afford to pay these inflated prices means that we're or drug companies are sort of tacitly saying, well, we're okay with people dying from conditions that people don't get in America. Are you comfortable talking about that a little bit? Well, we only work in the United States uh, because that is a big enough challenge for us. Yes. Uh, I will say that drug companies want to invest only in drugs that produce a big return. They're profit maximizers, they're corporations. And we don't have a way that we balance that out where we say, yes, but 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 taxpayers are are doing the foundational research that leads to these drugs and and these are in that sense public goods. Uh, and we need to figure out how, yeah, you can have a fair return, but we also make sure that they're priced to maximize affordability and accessibility. And in the this plays out overseas with neglected tropical diseases, which you referenced, which, you know, drug companies don't want to spend a lot of money on because those countries don't have a lot of money to pay for them. Because all the companies care about is honest to God, you know, they they want us to believe that they're all about looking after our well-being. They are corporations and corporations by law have to maximize profits for their shareholders. And that's what they do. Um, uh, you know, who invests in neglected tropical diseases? The Gates Foundation and other foundations that uh, put the money out to do that early stage research that changes the pricing equation, should, should change the pricing equation, um, so that we can still develop the drugs that people abroad would benefit from tremendously uh, if if only we made the effort and made the investment, uh, which they're not inclined to do. Yeah, Did that answer no. your question? Yes, very well, very well. I think if people are like looking for evidence on this, they could look at the speed at which we started to develop uh, Ebola treatments of vaccines once that became a threat to us versus once it became a threat to people in the global periphery. By the way, I will say one more thing. Yeah, of course. It's not that drug companies only hurt people in poorer countries in the world. Yeah. It is that drug companies insist on high prices everywhere. And, for example, um, the disease cystic fibrosis is incurable, and um, there are new drugs that help people live longer, uh, they are marketed by Vertex. Interestingly, the gene that all of these uh, drugs are built on, uh, the genetic component, was identified by the former head of the NIH, Francis Collins, when he was doing research paid for by the NIH at the University of Michigan. His, his discoveries were seminal, uh, but still the drug companies wouldn't invest. So the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation raised money from its community to do more early stage research. And when it showed promise, uh, Vertex 
bought the intellectual property from them uh, and uh, brought these drugs that are built on that genetic discovery to market. But in countries that have said we can't afford the price you're demanding because we only have so much money to pay for our citizens for health care because we provide health care to all our citizens, Vertex will let people, kids, because it generally affects kids and younger adults, will let them die if the company, if the countries won't agree to the price that they are insisting on. Literally, let them die and say, look, you know, if you won't strike a deal that has a high enough price for us, we're not going to sell the drug in your, in your country. So it isn't only the poor people, uh, uh, you know, the poorer countries around the world. It's patients who are stuck with a drug, uh, a disease that requires a high-cost drug, and maybe they can't get access to it because it's not affordable for their country or them. Yeah, it's, it's really pretty bleak stuff in that sense. Let's get on to a little bit then of how we can make this better. And I know that there are approaches that are incremental and there are approaches that are more revolutionary or, or sort of making these big leaps. So let, let's start with talking about how this legislation that we've just seen, the Inflation Reduction Act, does that make a difference? How much of a difference does it make and, and how does it make that difference? The Inflation Reduction Act is really historic legislation that is going to save millions of people in America millions of dollars over time. Uh, it does four big things. It does many more, but four big things. Uh, one, for the first time ever, Medicare is going to be able to use its, its purchasing power as the largest purchaser of drugs in this country to uh, negotiate lower prices for people on Medicare. For the first time ever, we are going to curb price gouging by forcing companies that raise prices faster than the rate of inflation to pay a rebate uh, to Medicare. We're gonna, that will curb their, their price increases. Uh, third, we are going to limit the amount of out-of-pocket annually a Medicare patient can pay under the Medicare Part D prescription drug benefit. Right now, there is no annual out-of-pocket limit. I pay for that drug I described to you before that costs almost $1,000 a capsule. I pay out-of-pocket more than $16,000 a year. In 2025, there will be a limit uh, of $2,000. No Medicare beneficiary will pay more than $2,000 out-of-pocket uh, for uh, Medicare Part D drugs. And Four, for the first time starting next year, people who depend on insulin in Medicare will pay no more than $35 per prescription per month uh, for their insulin. Um, these are all truly significant changes uh, and begin to shift uh, drug policy uh, in this country, begin to uh, uh, break the dictatorial pricing ability that the drugs, drug companies have. And I want to take a minute to explain why Medicare negotiation in itself is such a big breakthrough. 
Very quickly, when the Medicare prescription drug benefit was enacted into law in 2003, the drug companies in the dark of night got stuck into that law, something called the non-interference clause that said that the Secretary of Health and Human Services could not negotiate directly with drug companies, period. It got stuck in in the dark of night by a man named Billy Towson, who was then chair of the Energy and Commerce Committee in the U.S. House of Representatives. And within months after doing that, at the behest of the big drug companies, he went to work to run the big trade association for the drug companies. It's called Pharma at a salary of $2 million a year. In other words, they bought the prohibition on Medicare being able to negotiate. And they have spent hundreds of millions of dollars to keep that prohibition in place ever since then. Just in the last two years, uh, in fighting to not let Medicare negotiate over any drugs ever directly with the drug companies, they spent uh, north of $200 million to try and stop that legislation from passing. Um, so these are all big, significant, important changes. They are not enough. Uh, if, if, if we ruled the world, we would have written legislation that, uh, negotiated over more drugs and, uh, the pricing for which extended into the private sector and to people without insurance. But we had to, to do that to extend it to the private sector and people without insurance, we needed 60 votes in the Senate because of the filibuster rules. Mm -hmm. And we couldn't get one, not one Republican vote. So yeah. it had to be passed under a special procedure called reconciliation. The mm -hmm. Democrats used it. They stood up to pharma and they passed the bill. God bless them. Uh, yeah. We, in the course of it, had um, a vote I'm trying to extend the $35 insulin monthly copay to the private sector. We could only get seven Republican votes. Um, and so we couldn't take it all the way there. So there's much more work to do. But this breakthrough is truly historic. Yeah, it's good. It, it, it's good to see some progress because there hasn't been progress for a very long time. Uh, let's talk about the difference then between a cost and a copay because I think it's easy for politicians sometimes so you know tweet insulin will cost you x and in fact it only costs you x if y instead of true <laughs> so can you explain for folks what a copay is and why sometimes these claims are made about copays and those are not the same as costs well the big difference is the word price versus cost in our system yeah we in order to lower out-of-pocket costs for people we have to lower price. Why? If you were paying $100 out of pocket for your medicine and we zero that out to nothing, but we don't lower the price, the overall price, that $100 has to be paid for by someone. And what happens is patients wind up paying higher premiums uh, or higher taxes or getting less money in their paychecks, you know, half of more than half of all Americans get their drug coverage and healthcare through their employers. So if that $100 still has to be paid by somebody, then we wind up paying for it 
uh, either with higher premiums, higher taxes, or getting less money in our paycheck because someone needs to absorb that hundred bucks. This is very important for people to understand. There's no free lunch unless we lower prices. That's why pharma will always say, the big drug companies will always say, well, what we need to do is we just need to lower everybody's out of pocket, make it zero and let them have all the drugs they want and let us continue to charge any price we want. But that's not, there's, there's no free lunch. It would still have to be paid. And um, so we fight very hard at Pages for Affordable Drugs to help patients and policymakers understand that we need to do both. We need to lower out-of-pocket costs for people, and we need to lower the price in order to do that. Co-payments. Co-payments are what you pay when you go to um, the pharmacy counter, and they tell you that your share of this uh, prescription is $5 or $10 or $20. And lots of times, employers and the insurance companies they hire to run their programs will use copayments to try and steer you to a less expensive drug, a generic, Yeah. right? So if you want a brand, you're going to have to pay 50 bucks. But if you'll take the generic, you pay five bucks, for example. They're trying to steer you to an equally effective drug. Generics are, by definition, the same exact drug. And, and they are trying to steer you to the less expensive but equally effective drug. The problem with our country, big time, is that sometimes they are not used for that purpose. In my case, I have co-payments on all my drugs, right? Yeah. But I don't have a choice. I don't have a cheaper generic. <laughs> I gotta have, I gotta take the drugs they're telling me to take. Um, and so, when we misuse co-payments like that, we are hurting patients. Uh, and it's how we also need to change. It points to how we also need to change our benefit design in this country. If if we can steer a patient to a healthier or as healthy, least ex- less expensive option, that makes sense. But if you're charging me for something that I can't do anything about, that makes no sense at all. Uh, and so these are changes that we at P4AD work on and will continue to work on in our benefit design in this country. Yeah, I can see they're trying to give you a price incentive to what not buy your drug in your case or be poor or or be sick because you can't afford it, which is that's not the function of the incentive and it's silly. Can you explain how, why do some drugs have generics and some don't? So, boy, you're asking some really good questions. <laughs> um, you're going right to the heart of our system. <laughs> Thank you. A, a long time ago uh, in the 80s, 83 or 84, a bill was passed called the Hatch-Waxman Bill. And since then, everyone refer, refers to a concept called the Hatch-Waxman Bargain. And the bargain is this. If you're a drug company and you bring a valuable new drug to market, you get a period of exclusivity uh, along with your – you have a patent already probably – But upon approval, we give you a period of exclusivity where for sure, no matter if your patent is old and only has a year left, we give you additional years of exclusivity where you have a monopoly on that drug. But at the end of that period of exclusivity, generics and biosimilars, biosimilars are 
the generic name or the name for generics for biologic drugs. They're more complicated drugs. But at the end of that period of exclusivity, a generic, uh, I'm not a generic, generics and biosimilars come to market and we use the competition from the generics and biosimilars to drive down the price. The, when you have one generic that comes to compete, the price goes down about 15 or 20%. Two generics, the price goes down 35 to 40%. Three generics, you know, 40 to 30%. By the time you get five generics in the market, the price is roughly 5 to 15% of the original brand name price. So the Hatch-Waxman bargain was you got a good drug, you bring it to market, we give you a time where you you can charge whatever you want, you have exclusivity in the market, but at the end of that, we have competition from generics and biosimilars to lower price. Why aren't there generics and biosimilars? That was your question. For all drugs, well, some drugs are still in their period of exclusivity, but the drug companies don't let competition come to market, the brand drug companies. They fight. They file additional patents. They uh, they sign deals with generic companies not to bring a drug to market, a competitor to market, and pay them not to. Um, uh, they make small changes in the drug and then file additional patents. There is something called a patent thicket um, Humira, the best-selling drug in the world, has like 132 patents. 132, 75% of which were filed after the drug came to market. What are they for? Well, they could be for the packaging, the instructions, uh, the color of the capsule. They patent everything. And why? Because a generic or biosimilar competitor has to fight its way through all of them to bring a drug to market. So we call them patent thickets. It, you know, if you grew up anywhere near, you know, a place where there were thickets, you know, it's very hard to get through a thicket. Um, yeah. And so in some cases, there's no competitor because they're in the period of exclusivity. But in far too many cases, there are no competitors to drive down the price because the drug companies are manipulating our system. And they're very good at manipulating our system. Yeah, yes, they are exceptionally good. And that has terrible results. Okay, so we've spoken about that, uh, the, the way that they've manipulated the system, the way that maybe that's beginning to change. One thing that I'm interested in, I've written about it a little bit, is these ways that are perhaps more revolutionary, uh, if not always as uh, like a cast iron safe. Uh, and one of those is obviously people making their own medicines, which is uh, something that we'll see, unfortunately, increasingly in this country because of bans on access to reproductive health care. And I wonder how you think that has the potential to change this. There's, we've seen like the EpiPencil, we've seen these homebrew abortion drugs, things like that. Do you think that has the capacity to change access? Well, remember, I'm a patient. Mm -hmm. And... Um, it scares the hell out of me. Yeah. And the reason is there was a time in the United States and in most of the world when drug companies were not regulated. 
and they they brought you know patent medicines uh, and uh, you know mix it at home brews and sold them, and we had no way to make sure that those didn't hurt people. They had killed people in some cases, uh, and then uh, in the twentieth century, uh, the government realized and and our Congress and our elected officials realized we needed a way to regulate this industry, which would, you know, sell poison uh, in some cases. And they created what is now called the Food and Drug Administration. Food and Drug Administration is charged with making sure drugs are safe and effective. I'm a patient. I want the Food and Drug Administration to do its job. I want drugs that are safe and effective. Uh, I do not like drugs that are not subjected to some scrutiny um, to make sure that they do what those who are selling them claim they do. So remember, I'm not big on taking chances with my life. uh, And I, if the drugs don't work, I'll die. That, yeah. That's that simple. I'll die of cancer. Not not to mention I could drive, die from a drug that's no good. Uh, some drugs cause harm, you know. Uh, yeah. Even drugs approved by the FDA cause yeah. harm sometimes. So I am I am I am not a fan of homebrew drugs. I am a fan of a system that protects me and ensures that drugs are safe and effective. But that's one man's perspective. Yeah, and I, I think it's reasonable to say that like we have a way to make drugs that are safe and effective, and it's the law, the legislation, or a system that's getting in between people and the life-saving medicines that they need. And um, we should certainly struggle to fix that um, instead of looking for ways around it, even though I understand why, especially with things like reproductive health care, that doesn't seem like it's getting fixed anytime soon, sadly. No, no, and it is... It's terribly sad. It's heartbreaking. Yeah, this whole thing is extremely, and I know uh, you've obviously seen it too, but in my previous life, I've worked with one of uh, someone who works for you now in in diabetes nonprofit and seen firsthand the uh, consequences of this. And it's really heartbreaking stuff to look at. And I wish it just seems so unnecessary in a world where like these pharmaceutical companies make we should say, like billions of dollars, right? It's it's not as if these people are, you know, driving to work in a secondhand Toyota Corolla. Like they they are doing very well for themselves off this system, right? Yep. Uh, people will be familiar with uh, like Pharma Bro. Uh, is it Martin Screlly, the guy? Yeah. Yeah, but th- this is just one example of a very problematic industry. I think you've done an excellent job of explaining it, David. Is there anything else you'd like to get to before we finish up here? Just Martin Shkreli, you, you called to mind. I'm going to take you back to Moderna and the mRNA vaccine. Please and the do. fact that we not only developed the mRNA technology with taxpayer money, but we brought the Moderna vaccine to, mo- to people with taxpayer money. Mm-hmm. And in the course of doing that, we minted three new Moderna billionaires. Um, you're talking about them not driving to work and, uh, you know, secondhand Toyota Corollas. Oh, far from it. (laughs) 
yeah, these are the people whose yachts I see in the bay. I think that's disgusting. Three new millionaires off the back of the billionaires. billionaires. Billionaires, God. Yeah, God, it's gross, isn't it? Yeah, it, it it can't be said enough. Like, not only does the NIH fund the research, but often the taxpayers will fund the lab, right? If it's at a university, you pay yes. for it twice yes. before yes before you try and pay for it again. Uh, so, yeah, it's a very broken system, David. How can people find P four AD? How can people find you? Is there a website, a Twitter, a yep. Facebook? Where should yep. they go? Uh, go to our website. Patients for affordable drugs.org, just like it sounds. Uh, you can leave your story if, if you or someone you love, care about, has struggled with high drug prices. Give us your email address. We don't ask patients for money, uh, but the stories and the email addresses are our power. Uh, they're, the, they're the currency we trade on uh, to make sure that the voices of people in this country are heard uh, to counter uh, the propaganda and lies that are uh, put out by the drug companies. Okay, yeah, that's, that's very important stuff that people can hopefully do, even if they are struggling sort of materially to afford their drugs, maybe they have some time. So that's great. And it's for F-O-R, right? Not the number four. That's correct. All right, great. Thank you so much, David. It's been a pleasure. You've done an excellent job of explaining a very convoluted and broken system. Thank you for taking this. <laughs> James, you're, you're a patient man. <laughs> I try to be. Sometimes I'm very much not that. But yeah, I do appreciate your time on this Monday morning. Thank you very much, David. Thank you. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Bean Dad, The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, 
the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about things falling apart. I am Robert Evans, and uh, today we're going to talk about a specific part of Eurasia, where, I don't know, things are kind of on the edge of of, of falling apart and maybe becoming something else. As I'm sure most people are aware, uh, Russia expanded its invasion of Ukraine earlier this year. Um, it has not gone well, and the government has recently announced that they are doing a general mobilization and bringing in another 300,000 soldiers into their armed forces. Uh, the A significant chunk, if not the bulk of these recruitments are coming from areas away from the, uh, on the periphery of Russian power, you might say, um, particularly different chunks of the Russian state um, where there are minority populations who have been uh, dissident to the, to the Federation of Russia in the past. Um, probably the most active of these is a place called Dagestan. Um, most Americans probably are not super well-versed on this area. It is the furthest southern point in the Russian state. It borders Azerbaijan. Um, it's pretty close to Turkey. And uh, this is a region that has a, a massive Muslim population and has been the site of a lot of resistance to the Russian state in the recent past. And today we're going to be talking about what that looks like now as the the government is attempting to draft men from this part of the the state and and uh, as sort of resistance has risen up significantly within Dagestan. Um, I'm going to be talking with Karina Avedisian. Uh, Karina is a PhD studying social movements in particularly in Russia. Um, Karina, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, so first off, I'm not an expert on, on Dagestan. Um, what do you think is important for people to know about the relationship between this region and the Russian state? Um, it's the biggest republic in the North Caucasus. Um, and it has actually independent media still, de- despite the really intense repression um, and the dozens of uh, disappeared or murdered journalists from, from the republic. Um, 
kinship ties are strong in Dagestan. So the announcement of mobilization and the kind of, you know, the start of the mobilization process um, really affects people because extended families are close. So when someone is taken away, it affects a, a lot of people. Um, so that um, in large part kind of explains the level of mobilization. The other thing I want to mention is that um, the North Caucasus region in general, but especially Dagestan and Chechnya, um, just kind of don't see themselves as part of Russia. Um, to be honest, Russians don't really care about what happens there either. I mean, you know, it's as if it's another country and there's this huge disconnect. Um, so there doesn't really exist this kind of civic Russian identity. Um, and the concept of Russia as a country is to a large extent held together by sheer repression and propaganda. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's kind yeah. of part. I kind of why I try to focus on like this is a part of the Russian state rather than like these areas are Russian because that's certainly not the way it feels on the ground or the people feel about themselves. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you can kind of see differences in the way police respond to these protests in, in Russian regions versus places like Dagestan. Um, in Russian regions, and by Russian region, I mean you know places where you know, Russian, ethnic Russians are a majority. Yeah. Um, you have people or you have police kind of arresting or detaining and arresting um, protesters. Whereas in Dagestan, um, you know, the, the, the tactics of de-arresting uh, people, you know, who are being kind of carted off is really significant because of the, the history of violence in, in the Republic. Um, so abductions, um, disappearances and murder is very common. Um, and this is something that I've heard Dagestani um, protest participants kind of express fear about. Like, you know, people know that that might happen. You might get identified um, among the protesters and you might not get detained and arrested like you would, you know, in Moscow, for example, but you might get, you know, identified and then kind of targeted later. Which is, yeah, I mean, obviously very frightening. Um, one of the things that I had read kind of about part, some of the, the, origins of the conflict in the region right now is that um, it had been common for some time because the the economy in, in Dagestan, Dagestan is in the Caucasus, which is a, a mountainous region in southern Russia, and it's where a great deal of the country's fuel comes from. Um, there are kind of folks who will say that the, the government of the Federation has like avoided utilizing that infrastructure to the most that it can to avoid providing jobs, and it's made a lot of young men join the military to become contract soldiers. In the past, that was a good way to provide for if you had a large family. You do a military contract, you're not going to get sent outside of the region. It's pretty safe. But then, of course, Putin invades Ukraine, and suddenly a lot of these people who had been doing this, not because they wanted to support the Russian Federation, but because it was a job, are suddenly being sent to go fight and die in uh, outside of Kharkiv or wherever. Yeah. Um, the other thing is um, that's why there's so many security personnel kind of internally in the Republic as well. So the Republic experiences high unemployment, um, as you mentioned, poverty. Um, and it's almost by design, right? So many people are just relying on the state for jobs and security um, services is one of the main um, sources of employment. But that also kind of has that double effect of, um, you know, being used as a tool for repression. So anytime kind of dissent comes up, even, you know, when a large part of the grievances are about poverty and unemployment and just kind of having no future. You have um, a, a, a kind of excess of people who are ready to kind of suppress um, any expression of kind of dissent that might lead to problems later. 
And, and it seems like a great deal of dissent right now is coming from um, the Muslim pop, in particularly like the Muslim religious community within Dagestan. The the reason that you and I are talking right now is you you shared and commented on a post um, where someone was sharing a a piece of protest art um, that was referencing a recent comment by the ch- deputy mufti uh, of Dagestan. Um, and it's a, a, a stylized drawing of several mountains on a green background that says the invader doesn't become a martyr. And if I'm interpreting that correctly, what what that's saying is it's it's a statement of protest from within the Islamic community of Dagestan saying, if you go to someone else's homeland to take part in an invasion, and you die, you're not being martyred. You're not dying in a way that is that is you know uh, uh, respected by Allah. Essentially, is that am I am I interpreting that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly what it's saying. And I found that remarkable mm-hmm. um, for a couple of reasons. Um, the first is that um, descent in the region originally, so you know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union and then the first Chechen war, there was dissent, but it was mostly limited to ethno-nationalist movements who were very narrow in their messaging. So their grievances were, you know, just about their one ethnic group and, you know, whatever repression that they experienced. So um, they kind of missed out on broader support. And um, political Islam became a channel for um, kind of representing oppositional identity. Um, And because of um, that cutting across of ethnic lines through Salafism, which is um, kind of a stricter interpretation of Islam, which is prone to radicalization, um, that had much broader uh, support and and posed a significant threat to Moscow. And I want to kind of make a parallel here because... um, Mosques and religious communities across the world are actually really um, interesting spaces for social movement mobilization. Um, Some of the earliest works on social movement mobilization talked about um, black churches in the U.S. as being, you know, key to the civil rights movement. Because you have these spaces that are kind of away from the state, away from surveillance, although in in Dagestan and lots of parts of Russian um, Muslim spaces are are totally infiltrated by the state or they're actually, you know, state muftis or the state's eyes and ears are kind of there. But still there's these spaces. And I think that's a a big kind of um, significant key factor in how this movement has been able to mobilize. And I'm interested in, because obviously Chechnya is another part of Russia that has a large Muslim population. There was a horrible war there not all that long ago that is really a prelude in a lot of ways to the kinds of violence and the kinds of repressive tactics that are being used right now by the Russian state. Um, what, what sort of separates – like why didn't Dagestan kind of go the same way as Chechnya? Like how – I'm kind of interested in, in, in that because it seems as if – the the muftis there are much more willing to kind of act in resistance to the state still is it just a factor of the violence that was unleashed on chechnya earlier is there more to it um i think in large part it's yeah i mean that's the legacy of violence and war um in chechnya but i think it's partly because of how of this kind of historical view of chechnya as being um you know a threat a problem for the yeah. russian empire and previously and then soviet union and then now you know independent russia independent you know <laughs> um and it's really the rule of ramzan kadyrov uh, which plays a really suppressing role in the republic and his security services chechnya has experienced post-war I would argue it's it's calmer in in a in a strange way. I mean, I was 
um, when I was doing my field work in the North Caucasus, I visited Chechnya. I was in Kabardino-Balkaria, which is, you know, a couple republics over. Um, I didn't experience war, but I remember at the time there were counter-terrorist operations in Kabardino-Balkaria where the security services would kind of lock down whole neighborhoods and kind of storm apartment buildings to go after someone who had been, you know, identified as a problem and just kind of, you know, neutralize that person. They were rarely detained. They were just kind of killed. No questions asked. Then going to Chechnya from that kind of context, it, it, that stuff doesn't happen just because the security apparatus is so strong and so intense that that kind of thing doesn't happen. At the same time, you feel that tension, that kind of fear. Um, so I think that's the main reason why um, you're, you're not seeing these sort of protests in, in Chechnya. When we talk about like... What is it reasonable to hope for here? Uh, I wonder if you have any thoughts on that from Dagestan, like in in terms of resistance to both this kind of general conscription order and resistance in general to the to the increasing imperial aims of the Russian state. Yeah, I think um, it's revealing those cracks that I mentioned in the beginning about identity and then kind of this this region not feeling like a part of Russia. Yeah, um, and I think um, the other thing is that um, it. It's unprecedented in many ways, just in terms of its messaging. And, you know, protest movements in general are seen to kind of, when you participate in a movement, um, it's it's sort of transforming um, on an individual level. You feel like you're part of something. You see all these other people um, on the street who are, you know, agreeing with you in a context that's so authoritarian where, and you don't, you know, have that freedom to speak out. There's no free media um, in general. Um, it's, it's, it's transformative. and I think that's probably for me, at least as a social movement scholar, the most interesting aspect. I mean, we can't predict, we don't know what's going to happen. There might be a you know, new wave of repression, um, but it's, it's revealing these cracks and um, kind of almost providing this proof of the, the lie of this you know, unified Russian state that, that is being kept together by repression and propaganda. Um, I think. The messaging also reflects a change in identity, in oppositional identity in the region. Um, previously, protests in the region were directed at the local leadership, so at the Republican level, right? So these are usually co-ethnics who are installed by Moscow, not so much to govern, but more to manage. Um, and Chechen leader Ramzan Kadyrov is, is an extreme case of this. And it was a practice common in Imperial Russia, right? You install your own guy, but he's local. So it sits better with the population, right. um, even if they're only there to carry out um, policies that are decided. And so, um, so those protest movements were normally against the Republican um, authorities, um, their excesses, their corruption, um, you know, and, and again, the exception to that is Salafism, which was targeting both Moscow and the local leadership. But here, in this new wave of protest movement, the, the sentiment, the grievances are against Putin. Yeah. And that's totally new. And I, I, one of the things that is kind of remarkable is you've gotten in the wave of, and these are not just in Dagestan, but Dagestan had a lot of the protests against this general mobilization order. You actually have what what looks to me, and you're you're certainly no certainly no more than I do. So tell me if you think my analysis of this is is wrong. But looks to me like the regime blinking a little bit because, at in the wake of the protests, you had both Putin and a number of different local leaders come out and say we 
Because one of the things that was happening as soon as the mobilization started is you saw a lot of these people, including like doctors, healthcare workers, other kinds of professionals and industries that are generally protected from this sort of thing, getting pulled in by state forces and effectively drafted on the spot along with protesters. And um, the in the wake of the outcry against that, Putin himself and a number of other local leaders have come out and been like, this was a mistake. We're releasing a number of these people, these these cer- certain, you know, we're not supposed to be drafting people from these certain professions and whatnot. And to me, that looked like, well, maybe that's a little bit of a blink. Um, but I don't know if perhaps I'm being overly optimistic there. No, I, I agree. Um, and it speaks to the level of mobilization that kind of unprecedented um, um, levels of mobilization on the street. And also speaks to the fact that, you know, previously Moscow, I mean, they didn't care as much when the protests were directed at the local authorities. I mean, they did, but not like this. This is this is threatening. Um, and I was listening to an interview of a um, protest organizer from Dagestan. He's exiled, but he's kind of, you know, in touch with the people on the ground. And he, and he was talking about how he felt that the reason mobilization orders have been um, commissioned kind of to the, the Republican authorities, the regional authorities is on purpose. So that grievances um, aren't directed towards Moscow because it's the regional authorities deciding on who's being mobilized. Um, and it's a kind of deflection of, of blame that he thought was um, by design. And the interviewer asked him a couple other questions. He was saying, oh, you know, we're hearing reports about the police being really brutal. Um, and again, he was like, no, not really. <laughs> that, or that's not the point. That's not the mm-hmm. question to be asking. It's actually deflecting because, again, the grievance is not to the local police. It's actually towards Moscow, who is, you know, the the, the origin of this whole problem. And I think that's that's a threat. Do you have any kind of advice for people if they're looking as kind of things continue to develop in Dagestan as there are more protests, which I'm sure there will be, are there actually like organizations over there that can be supported by people, Um, including you mentioned independent media there? Um, I'm just wondering if you have any kind of particular advice for folks who might either want to learn more about the region and what's going on um, or who might want to try and help the people who are protesting right now. Um. Unfortunately, there's um, not much for outsiders to do. A lot of the news, yeah, and I think again, I was kind of expecting kind of that was the answer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. it's kind of a denied context. So, where I get the news is a couple Telegram channels that are only in, in Russian. Mm-hmm. Um, so that probably doesn't help your audience if they don't I, speak Russian. No, um, I, there's a couple Twitter accounts that I would recommend people follow. You know, um, there's um, I don't know if I can mention that or yeah, please, no, absolutely. Let me quickly find the guys. Personally, uh, when it comes to like where I'm able to get English language news about the region, Medusa is generally kind of like one of the places where I've gotten some. Medusa is a Russian news site that's or news organization that's banned in Russia. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, a Medusa journalist just got arrested in Dagestan by the state security services. Um, But you can go to Medusa.io and that's one place where I've come across news that's English language. it's not the most detailed coverage, but it's kind of hard to find that in English about stuff going on in Dagestan. It is. It is hard to find. And I would echo that um, sentiment of, you know, Medusa being a good source for that. Um, there is a researcher on, on Twitter named Harold Chambers. Uh, his handle is Chambers Harold 8, the number eight. And he is an analyst and he is posting kind of more detailed, you know, in the weeds up to, you know, up to date um, 
day-to-day developments from from the region um and is there anything like as as we i'm kind of closing out here um that you wanted to particularly get into about what's happening over there about kind of um the development of 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 social movements in dagestan right now that you you find particularly fascinating that you'd like to kind of talk about to the audience yeah i think um the context of the russian war on terrorism in the north caucasus plays a huge role here Mm -hmm. um and I mentioned, you know, the counter-terrorist operations that, that um, Russia used to use in the region as a repression tool. Um, so they didn't have to be Salafists or kind of, you know, seen as you know, extremists to, to be targeted and stuff like that. Like secular Dagestanis and Chechens were absolutely targeted in, in that kind of, in those, um, in, in, those um, in that context of, of counter-terrorism. And it's really the fact that your know, Dagestanis are really tired of, of the repression. People leave the Republic and move abroad um, because they've been labeled a terrorist and they don't want to die. Um, and when their families send them money um, to support them abroad, they get um, labeled as terrorists because they're helping, you know, support a terrorist. Oh, so God. it's, it's why it's also why the movement is leaderless um, because there's really no intelligentsia or leaders left in the Republic um, anymore. Anyone who had any kind of critical standpoint um, has either been killed or exiled. So we have to see the mobilization in Dagestan as kind of, you know, with that backdrop, uh, people are tired of the repression. Um, and, and yeah, the, the protests are spontaneous. And uh, the fact that it's horizontal is also unprecedented. And it obviously means that it's much harder to repress um, the movement and suppress it because there's no you know, individuals to kind of target. That's interesting because that's obviously a, a global trend that we've seen in in protest movements, not just against the Russian state, but around the world. Governments have gotten much better at not- finding leaders in protest movements, compromising them, going after them, targeting them, arresting them. Um, it's it, and I think this has been a part of why all over the world you've seen so many more horizontal movements leading street protests against different kinds of repression because it's really the only thing that can't be compromised easily by the security forces. Yeah, especially in an authoritarian context. Yeah. Well, um, Karina, is there anything else you wanted to say before we we close out? No, no, that's it. All right. Well, uh, why don't we talk a little bit about your plugs here because you have a podcast that you're about to be starting. Yeah, I'm starting a podcast. It is called Obscuristan uh, Podcast, where we'll talk about the bizarre and fucked up uh, nature of of the region of Eurasia, um, but also, more importantly, how it got that way. Um, Yeah. So that's what we're doing. I can think of a few more topics, more important topics for people, particularly people just where I live, to understand. So many people have been affected in, in, you know, we're we're looking at the, the energy crisis hitting the UK and and to a slightly lesser extent continental Europe right now we're looking at rising food prices in the United States all of it tied to this conflict which people wouldn't have been surprised by if they'd been paying attention to Eurasian history and politics a little bit more um so i i i think that's a, a commendable effort and i'm excited to start listening um thank you so much can, oh yes can i mention one last thing absolutely um so i'm I'm sitting in Armenia and speaking to you from Armenia. So mm-hmm. um, I would just encourage um, your listeners to um, find out about what's happening. We were recently um, attacked by Azerbaijan yep. and um, we have some 41 square kilometers that are currently occupied by Azerbaijani soldiers. So I would encourage people to learn about the conflict and kind of pay attention to what's happening here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we continue to be big advocates for 
folks paying attention to that. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, it's it's I don't know. I, you know, I, I had this brief period of like optimism when the White House started making statements and Pelosi visited that like and, and we'll see. Maybe I know there's like there's a, a vote coming up right now in Congress to stop selling weapons to the Azeris, which would be at least a start. Um, but I mean, you know, it, the, what's I think is necessary is for Armenia to have access to the kind of weapons that, um, have been so successful at stopping foreign aggression in other countries, shall we say? Yeah. Uh, yep. Absolutely. Well, all right, Karina, thank you so much for your time. That's going to be our show for the day. Have a good one, everybody. Keep paying attention to stuff. Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6X. Visit tomboyx.com. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. 
Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You trying to conceive of a girl boss noise to me? No, I'm trying. Uh, there's trying to think of something that's about like Italian racism um, and how we should all be racist against Italians because um, now it's important. Um, oh, <laughs> hi! Welcome to It Could Happen Here, the show where we're talking about <laughs> anti-Italian racism um, and Yay. also girl, and, and also girl bosses. <laughs> finally, finally, yep. two two great tastes that go great together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like we, mixing. Peanut butter and piss. That's right. Yeah. And the piss being mm-hmm. Italians and yes, peanut butter course. being girl boss. <laughs> we usually don't no. say things that are that obvious, but yes. Uh, with me today is uh, Chris, James, and Robert. I'm Garrison. And we're talking about girl boss fascism today. Um, and uh, uh, it's are we going to say Georgia? Is that how we're going to do it? Is that how we're going to say her name? It's Georgia, but I don't know. George, Georgia, Georgia Milani. Georgia Milani. Georgia Milani. Yeah. Italy's mm-hmm. new prime minister. Yeah. Georgia um, Milani. That's what I was waiting for. Thank so you. Thank you. Thank put, you some, put some Italian on it. Yeah. yeah we, spice up that meatball. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so since since 2014 she's been the head of the Brothers of Italy party, which is funny because when I think of the Brothers of Italy, I just think of Mario and Luigi, obviously. That's that, that's the, what most people mm-hmm. think. Yeah, so, but Mario so, and Luigi also fascists. So, well, they're we monarchists. Sure? Yeah, they Mm-mm. they're monarchists. They specifically serve no, no, no. A, a princess. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so Bowser, who's a girl boss, is Bowser is your standard issue left wing uh, Politburo chief type leader, whereas. What Mario and Luigi are doing, like Mussolini, is installing a royal in power. Is, is taking it's like it's in, essentially every Mario game is recreating the March on Rome. I have like ten pages to get through. <laughs> okay, so, where does a toadstool come into it? So since <laughs> no. 2014, she's been the head of the Brothers of Italy party, um, a party with direct lineage from the fascist Italian social movement, and Milani uh, herself has been on camera praising figures like Mussolini. Uh, and until very recently, the Brothers of Italy party, besides being uh, very uh, pro-plumbing, were, were, pretty on the, were pretty on the fridges of <laughs> Italian politics. Here we go! Just four years ago, the party won only 4% of the votes in the last election, and now it's become Italy's largest political party, claiming the greatest percentage of the vote in last month's election. So today we're going to talk about uh, who Melania is, what what she believes, what she kind of what what her rhetoric is, and then also the types of uh, how the types of ways that media has been framing her relation to fascism. Uh, 
Because there's definitely been this perception that like liberal feminists and mainstream media have been kind of soft on Milani because she's the first woman prime minister of Italy. Um, and have, they've kind of framed her ascension to power in like a girl boss, go get it sort of way and have been downplaying her more fascist views. So we're, we're going to talk about kind of where this perception comes from, the few ways where it's kind of correct and some of the ways where it's, I think, a little off base. To start off with this, one of the kind of the, one of the biggest things that uh, pushed this perception into the forefront was a tweet from Politico Europe, um, accompanying an article. Now, th- this this tweet Politico again. Politico Europe. Sorry. Okay. Thank you. Thank I, you. Um, <laughs> and because I I hate basing uh, our research off of things that are just on Twitter, this tweet has been referenced a lot on like television um on like news like news tv has been using this tweet a lot as well this is this has kind of shaped the way that discussions happening on a national stage even off twitter um but the 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 tweet the tweet reads in 1992 a 15 year old schoolgirl went to join her local branch of the far right youth front in rome the all male group of radicals met her with bemusement 30 years later, Georgia Milani is now on course to become Italy's first female prime minister. So the way that framework works is like, yeah, this this little girl wanted to join her Nazi club and it was a <laughs> boys club. girl boss. And now yeah. she's finally prime minister, the first one. And so, yes, obviously this is very cringy. Um, not, not great framing. A lot of good uh, girl Hitler jokes. The democracy. We even picked out president. Listen, I'm flat. Girl Hitler! No, really, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for you, honey. Wow, a girl president? How progressive. And so takes ah, like Venture the, Brothers. Venture Brothers. Criti- uh, mm-hmm. No, uncritical mm-hmm. support. It's just yeah. just support to Venture Brothers. Um, so takes like like that, like what like what we just heard uh, Dean of Venture say, kind of kind of spawned a a big slew of of comments. You know, I'm I'm just gonna read 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 some of the stuff that the people have been saying in response to stuff like that. Politico Europe. Uh, a piece, uh, quote, begging liberals to stop praising girl Bossolini for being brave enough to shatter the glass ceiling in the neo-fascist parties she's joined. And like, why is media treating this as a freaking girl boss story? The girl bossification of Georgia Milani has been interesting to watch. Liberals will literally stan anybody. So there's a lot of a lot of takes like that have been have been have been going around there's there's been ex- extremely viral vi- viral tweets getting hundreds of thousands of of likes thousands of thousands of retweets and shares stuff getting referenced on national tv uh, all kind of ab- about this you know people complaining the takes from political europe and and other other kind of various soft headlines emphasizing the girl boss nature uh, being like the sweet little girl defies the odds and grows up to be the first female Mussolini, <laughs> so like some of these jokes are pretty funny. I think I think they're they're funny. Um, they're fine. There is oh probably the worst one of these takes that I found that still got hundreds of of retweets and thousands of likes was quote the American right and the American left. The aesthetics are different, but the effect is the same. Support for the rising tide of fascism. Communists are the only people now as in the past who truly oppose fascists. No. <laughs> it's off. Well, 
I don't, oh, for fuck's sake. This isn't yep. true uh, for those of you following along at home. Uh, no. Yeah, there was a terrible yes, Meghan so- McCain tweet, which is very funny because people definitely were oh, standing. We'll, we'll talk Meghan about McCain. the Meghan McCain. Yes. Good. Can't wait. <laughs> I have. Yes, we'll we'll, t- we'll talk about our good friend Meghan McCain. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so you know, Italy's Italy elected their first female Mussolini um, in a remarkable victory for both girl power and diversity in politics. And people, people, uh, people had some good japes. So the other, the other kind of big thing that caused this perception that that like. Uh, that like the liberals will literally stan anybody. The other big thing that kind of caused that was uh, some viral quotes from Hillary Clinton, uh, talking talking about uh, the the role of of women in politics and referencing Melania. So some remarks uh, from Hillary Clinton published in Italy uh, last September uh, I think it was at I think it was at like the Venice uh, Film Festival actually um, so th- some some quotes from an interview that she gave at the Venice Film Festival went viral um, mostly because tweets included two two small clips of of these quotes when she was talking about both women in politics and uh, Georgie Georgia Georgia you're doing great, buddy. <laughs> so multiple viral yeah. tweets circulated, mostly with two short quotes from Clinton, getting the majority of attention, saying, quote, The election of the first woman prime minister in a country always represents a break with the past and is certainly a good thing, unquote. Mm. And a second quote being, Every time a woman is elected to head of state or government, that is a step forward, unquote. Um, obviously, those takes in and of themselves... Not very good. I, I don't think yeah. those are good opinions. Um, shocking. Shocking that we are going to criticize a statement from Hillary Clinton. Hillary Rodham Clinton. This is, this is rare for us. Mm. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, I'm, I'm surprised as well. But um, mm-hmm. these kind of are slightly cherry-picked from a larger section of this interview discussing women in government and how the far right is starting to use tokenized women to uphold patriarchy and conservatism. So the first quote's taken from this uh, from a translation of an interview that uh, that that uh, Clinton did at the Venice Film Festival in September 2022, prior to Melania's uh, apparent victory in the Italian elections on September 25th. So did she do it, it in Italian? Does she speak Italian? No, but it was only okay. published in Italian. I see. So and we're then translating from back. Italian back into yeah. English. So um, a double translation situation. Yes. Yeah. But the so in, in in a section of this interview talking about the increase of women in gov- in governmental leadership roles, a translation from her remarks in the larger section of this interview reads, quote, the election of the first uh, woman prime minister in a country always represents a break with the past and is certainly a good thing. But then, as with any leader, woman or man, she must be judged by what she does. I never agreed with Margaret Thatcher, but I admired her determination. <laughs> Clearly, oh. then the ideas are voted for. Um, I admired her determination to do what? Stamp on the neck of the working class? Fuck off. Also, does does, does she really oppose Margaret Thatcher's policies? Yeah, I don't know. I I don't know if I believe that one. No, that lady's dead (sighs) and the world is better for it. Uh, Do you think Margaret Thatcher had girl power? Yes, of course. Do you think she effectively utilized girl power by funneling money to illegal paramilitary death squads in Northern Ireland? I don't know about that. 
there's this thing that you get with like people talking about all of these ghouls where and it's specifically like a centrist thing where it's like, well, certain things are just admirable traits no matter about who has them. And you can admire that trait. And it's like, no, it's it's not. Yeah. Like there were a lot of men in the SS who, you know, were, were willing to do things that you would call brave, but it doesn't mean you have to consider them admirable, right? You know, I think like, uh, this yeah. is the we don't same, have to have respect same, for them. You, you don't have to hand it to the Nazis. <laughs> exactly. No, I, like I just fuck this, certain people. Yeah, I have, I, I, yeah, their contribution to the world is bad. You can yeah. just stop stop there. Yeah. Margaret Thatcher being a good example. I have like kind of the same thoughts on the inclusion of Toadette inside the new Mario Kart games. It's just really it's it's just you're signifying it, but it's not actually a step forward for the Toad race. It's um so in the next section of the interview, Clinton also acknowledges Garrison, Garrison's come out against woke Mario Kart. In the next section, Clinton also acknowledges conservative Brave. women politicians' role in upholding patriarchal government, saying, quote, women on the right are protected by patriarchy because they are often the first to support the fundamental pillars of male power and privilege. Today in America, the right-wing leaders are very much against abortion. Um, so she, she did like... It was part of this section talking about how women who are on the right and are running as conservative politicians actually support all of the uh, all of the things that keep patriarchy alive and blah 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 yeah, blah. It's, it's, well, it's, it's it's true centrism, right? It's half of a good take and half of a terrible take. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Back to back. Yeah. Exactly. So a it's lot a of the piss and peanut butter again. So yeah, so are, mm. are snippets of her comments uh, embarrassing? Re-women uh, being a break from the past, always being a good thing? Yes, most certainly. Um, are they taken out of context enough to change the scope of what's being said? I suppose that's subjective. Yeah. Um, but I just thought that's interesting that you know, there was very select few quotes that were getting a, a whole bunch of traction, and her larger statements were actually slightly more interesting. Um, yeah, go, go, go but, read eh. the article. Don't, don't do the Alex Jones shit of getting mad at a headline. Yeah, or, like or six yeah. seconds yeah. of clip. Like, come on, people. You have to be better than this. And I think <laughs> still, <laughs> you know, I see the same thing whenever I'm playing Mario Sunshine and there's the graffiti. Um, and <laughs> you can you can get mad at just saying there's the graffiti all over Deflino Paza. You can get mad about that. But once you actually start learning how Bowser Jr. was treated as a kid, it's, it's, yeah, there's actually more there's, there's more that you actually can understand about what's going on and what leads to that behavior from Bowser Jr. <laughs> Very identifiable. Everybody understands mm -hmm. those references, Garrison. Yeah. Good work. Yeah. I just want to say that there is only one square in Italy that matters, and that is Piazzale Loretto. And you can you can Google it. I just I love the the juxtaposition of Garrison struggling over every single word that's in the in the neighborhood of Italy, and then James just perfectly saying some fucking Italian shit. It's I, great. My Italian is bad. My Italian comes exclusively I, from you, your Italian's much better than anyone else hears. Yeah, maybe I know. Well, I just swear swear at other men in spandex. Is how I, I know a Italian. couple of curse words from watching my uncles play pool when I was a kid, but that's mm -hmm. about all I've got. Yeah, I rely on that hand gesture which works very well in podcasts. hand gestures are 80 percent of italian yeah yes it's true <laughs> okay so now ha having now exhausted every conceivable italian joke we could proceed with the script oh we hell can, no we no, can proceed no, no. With, we can actually <laughs> proceed with an ad break do you, do you know what mm -hmm. else is in support of anti-italian racism mm -hmm. who won't kill mussolini and hang him upside down in a square i mean probably the current prime minister of italy yeah that's true also probably these advertisers Okay, and we are back. So, Yahoo! 
there was there, there's been this kind of perception that the media kind of by and large dropped the ball on this one and uh this sentiment was pretty widespread among leftists that the kind of there was a lot of emphasis on the the breaking the fascist glass ceiling and less on the fascist part there was even people like uh, the MSNBC host Mehdi Hassan who ran a, a whole segment on his show about kind of mainstream liberal media outlets downplaying the fascistic elements of Milani uh, in headlines in favor of the girl power angle. What's been so depressing is to see so much of the quote unquote liberal media, the mainstream media, the MSM, giving a pass to Maloney or playing down her and her party's fascist roots, focusing more on the fact that she's female and less on the fact that she's, you know, fascistic. That has been deeply, deeply depressing to see. There was the uh, Washington Post headline. Georgia Maloney could become Italy's first female prime minister. Here's what to know. Now, here's what you wouldn't know from that headline. You wouldn't know that she has ties to fascism. But hey, she's female. There was the headline in the Financial Times. We can pull that up as well. Likely victory for Italian right portends risks, but no lurch into extremism. Don't worry, no lurch to extremism, even though they just elected card-carrying extremists. But still, hers is a heartwarming tale, isn't it? I kid you not, this was the tweet from Politico Europe. Let's pull up the tweet from Politico Europe. In July 1992, a 15-year-old schoolgirl rang the doorbell at a local branch of the Youth Front, a far-right movement in Rome, and asked to be let in. This weekend, that same schoolgirl could become Italy's next prime minister. Wow. Forget the fascism. Forget the fascism. Focus on the inspiration there. Then there was this op-ed in the New York Times. Georgia Maloney is extreme, but she's no tyrant. Well, that's all right then. At least she's not a tyrant. There was this op-ed in The Atlantic, which argued that the most immediate concern about Italy's new government is not any threat to the country's democratic institutions, still less a return to fascism. Did you notice a trend yet? It's not as bad as you think. This isn't really fascism. So we'll, we'll talk a bit more about media coverage of Milani's election in a bit and how I think some people are kind of desperate to see the stupid Democrat libs shill for fascism trope especially with the whole girl boss thing that they, they actually kind of miss how the framing of Milani's fascist ties has been perceived on a broad scale. But first I want to get into who she actually is, what her views are and what her election means. So Italy's a home, Italy is home to 60 million uh, people. Uh, well, and- <laughs> which part of that sentence do you have a problem with robert never mind we should just we just move on yeah and it's continental europe's third largest economy uh when it comes to the actual election the right-wing coalition that milani led won around 44 percent of the vote with milani's brothers of italy party getting around 26 percent for the senate race so in all around three out of four voters did not vote for milani and one in three didn't even vote at all. No surprise there. But overall, that means like only one in six Italian adults voted for the Brothers of Italy party. Uh, and that, that, does, that does make them the biggest party in the new parliament. But its long-term legitimacy is still kind of in question. Because she was leading a larger right-wing bloc. But the, but the actual party that she's in and leads 
got like 26% of the vote. So it's, it's right. It's, I think that's an important perspective on like how long she'll actually stay in power. Italian politics are kind of known for their kind of residing government, not lasting very long. There's, there's usually a pretty high like turnover rate. So we'll see. Um, they, it's an interesting composition, right? Of like, uh, like moderate-ish right-wing people and then like some more hardcore like no the, the it's the people who used to be the league of the north i think are the second largest party so it's not like a homogenous block that she's in charge of so it'd be kind of interesting to see how they hold together yeah and i think milani can be an example of what political scientists call like gender washing uh, when when female politicians adopt a non-threatening image to blunt the force of their extremism, I think you can see this as well with Daisy inside Mario Kart uh, for the for the Wii. Extremely brutal mm. character, play style very brawly, but you know she acts very nice and brawly. That, that yeah, she just like just powers through other other carts on the track. Okay, um, and it's it's. It, it leads to this slightly warped perception of what Daisy actually does. Um, so, and M- Milani's signature look involves flowing outfits in pastel shades, kind of like Princess Peach. Um, and to uninformed foreigners, her aesthetic could look like female empowerment. She poses as like a defender of women, uh, even though her party has rolled back women's rights. Just like in uh, the 2006 uh, Princess Peach game, she was uh, did brutal s- suppression of protests around the Mushroom Kingdom. So... David uh, Broder, author of Mussolini's Grandchildren, Fascism in Contemporary Italy, wrote in Political Europe, uh, get funny, this is v- v- very different take from P- Political Europe in this one, uh, quote, Milani owes much more to the moderate forces in what Italians call the center-right alliance. They've allowed her the opportunity to present herself as part of the mainstream, not just because she's been softening her policies, at least in presentation, but also because the center-right politicians jumping on her bandwagon has given her a veneer of respectability and credibility. Um, you can see this in Super Fashionable's Brawl when Wario shows up in a biker outfit, not wearing the regular <laughs> Italian uniform, and they just let him play. Like Mario and Luigi are wearing their proper outfit and Warrior just like showed up in like like a leather jacket and like ripped shorts. That's not okay. But it gave him the the veneer of respectability because others allowed it to take place. Kind of kind of the same thing here with Milani. At the same time, uh, attempts by the main like center-left rivals to make the election about this kind of ghost of fascism uh, spreading again through Milani have proved unsuccessful. Voters, by and large, did, did not buy the narrative kind of that that the left was trying to push that Milani was this reincarnation of fascism. They just it just that that they were not they were not convinced enough to affect the election results in any in any meaningful way. Um, same way Nintendo is not convinced that putting Waluigi in the new Smash Bros. will actually lead to more people buying the game. Uh, Italian essayist Roberto Slavinio wrote, quote, The far right can succeed in Italy because the left has failed, exactly as in much of the world, to offer credible visions or strategies. The left asks people to vote against the right, but it lacks a political vision or an economic alternative. And I think these are all the kind of factors that actually led Milani to win this election. Should we talk a little bit about the sort of Democratic Party, like five star alliance thing uh, that was happening? Sure. If you want to do like a TLDR on that, yeah, that okay. would be great. So 
All right, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, Italy had a very, very large and powerful left. Um, and then when the Soviet Union fell, so the, 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 they, they had the Communist Party. The Communist Party was like one of the most powerful communist parties in the world that wasn't like a sort of like dictatorial ruling party. But when the Soviet, like when the USSR fell, it like voted to dissolve itself basically and became the Democratic Party and all of their sort of militant, like much of the militants basically turned into libs. And, you know, I mean, and the Italian left like held together for kind of a long time after that because they had, you know, there's there's a very long tradition of sort of an extra parliamentary left, uh, and, and like specifically an anarchist left in Italy, but like the the modern, I don't know, it's kind of a shit show. Like in, in terms of actual party politics, like there's there was this thing called the Five Stars Movement, which was like kind of like basically astroturf by a billionaire. It was this like very weird, very like early 2010s party that was like doing the whole sort of like we're gonna do direct democracy by like online polls thing. So it has this like really weird mishmash. They're like the main social democratic force. Yeah. Well, sort of, but like they're, they're very weird. Like, like I don't know. You, you'll get things from them. Like, okay, we want like like they're they're not a normal social democratic party, right? They're closer okay. to like the pirate party, but like way weirder. Like, so you'll 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 get people in this party who are like you know who who were who are like you know sort of like old school like like leftist militants because this is where sort of like the energy was going right. But also like there's like anti vaxxers in it. It was just, it was this really weird ideological like sort of mishmash. And then when they sort of got into power like none of these people had ever been in politics before and so like you know you'd get someone who was like the head of garbage collection right who's from this party and they have no fucking idea how to collect garbage right and and it was it's, it's this real shit show because like you know and then, then you have the democratic party which are basically sort of just like lib hacks at this point and this meant that like you know and they they eventually sort of aligned with each other to try to keep like other like fascist basically like right-wing groups out of power but they like they 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 also they also like had an alliance for a little bit with uh one of the right wing parties. It's it's an incredibly like bizarre story and like honestly like deserves like its own episode one day. But yeah, yeah, yeah they're, they're very weird. They're not an effective left thing at all. They're just very very sort of a like mishmash confused populist thing. And it didn't like they yeah like they 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 definitely did not sort of like succeed in preventing an alternative, et cetera, et cetera. It was, I don't know, kind of a disaster. Yeah, Italy's, like, it's worth noting as well, I think, that, like, anti-fascism is is sort of baked into the myth of the Italian Republic, right? Like, the, that's what the Republic rests on. That's where it comes from. That's its creation myth. But, like, much in the same way as people living in the United States will be familiar with how these creation myths kind of lose all relevancy apart from like some kind of totemic meaning like their repetition has some kind of link to that but they don't really have any any value in in the contemporary discourse in terms of animating the way people act i think you could say that that's happened in italy right like people talk about people in institutions talk about anti-fascism as where they come from and it's foundational to italy's democracy but it's been so subsumed into structures of power that it it that institutional discussion of anti-fascism has lost its relevance from like the street fighting, like anti-fascism that created the Republic in the first place. So that concept is kind of defanged along with like Italian liberals have always walked hand in hand with uh, like business interests and the right wing, right? Like from even previous to fascism, like there was a, a quote unquote liberal monarchy, right? So Italian liberalism isn't necessarily this, anti-authoritarian force 
it was briefly like it got made to be briefly by the organized working class movement, but it hasn't been and it's going back to not being. Yeah, I mean, I think I now think we should may as well get into Melania's actual like views yeah. and what she actually <laughs> believes in the spouses, yeah. which I mean. What she actually believes in espouses maybe slightly different things, um, <laughs> but we'll, we'll we'll at least at least start. So Milani's uh, party, the Brothers of Italy party, was formed to quote carry forth the spirit and legacy unquote of the Italian social movement or the uh, MSI. <laughs> the and and the the MSI is the descendant of. Uh, Mussolini's National Fascist yes. Party. It's yeah. it's it's like a it has a direct lineage. Um, they even have the flame, right? They are still using the same logo. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is the flame on his tomb. I think that's where it comes from, right? Yeah, yeah, great um, stuff. So, uh, Milani has said that uh, quote LGBT lobbies are out there to harm women, and and they're and they're attacking the family by destroying gender identity um she's made statements about george soros calling him an international speculator uh which, <laughs> more, more on more on that in a sec yeah um, uh, good uh who says that 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 soros finances global mass immigration that threatens <sighs> a great replacement of white native born italians um, uh, yeah. milani shows af affinity for other kind of uh, authoritarian strongmen uh, like the uh, the, uh, the the Marine Le Pen, who's the leader of the of the National Rally Party in France. That's a strong um, woman. <laughs> in, yes, in, that's, uh, that's, that's not a man. It's part of the section on strongmen, uh, oh, like okay. like politi po political strongmen. Okay, um, yeah. She's 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 pr previously supported as as um, as uh, Joe Rogan taught me, Garrison. Strong times make hard men. Oh, no. mm -hmm. And also, <laughs> what I've learned from Matt Welsh is what is a woman. So, uh, yes. Yeah, strong man. But like, Melania's previously supported uh, Putin, although she's kind of lowered that enthusiasm since, invasion, <laughs> since the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, she, is, uh, she does have a, a pro Ukraine position on that publicly. Um, but she's a, a, a expressed kind of affinity for. The types of other fascist leaders across Europe that we see in Sweden, we see in Poland, we see in Hungary. She kind of aligned aligned herself with some of some of that kind of trend inside Europe. Milani wants to ban same-sex couples from adopting children and possibly dissolve same-sex couples' legal parentage over the children that they've already adopted. Her party has sought to ban a cartoon featuring a bear with two mothers arguing that kids should not be seeing same-sex adoption as natural or normal because it's not. Um, so basic kind of right-wing censorship of materials that they don't like. Uh, I don't think children should be allowed to watch cartoons with bears in them. Okay, good for you. It, it, it's um, going to reduce yeah, yeah. their readiness when it becomes time to fight the bears. Melania also think that they're wants friends, to ban... But they're not. Milani also wants to ban gay Italians from traveling elsewhere uh, for what? like surrogacy. Um, oh, okay. So like, so like they can't they can't leave the country to get to get like to to have them become parents in return. That's like it's okay. it's this, it's this, it's this whole whole thing. I'm gonna read a quote from Ruth Ben Gait, uh, a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University. Quote: Since 2017, she has tweeted repeatedly that Italian identity is being deliberately erased by globalists such as Soros and European Union officials who have conspired to unleash quote uncontrollable mass migration. Um, hmm. 
So normal, uh-huh. normal stuff there. Mm-hmm. And m- more on so, so in in a in a speech in in a few speeches and repeatedly, she refers to financial speculators and has called people like George Soros an oh, international speculator. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know when when she says. Uh, financial speculators, I, I don't think she actually means just people who speculate about finances. I think she means something slightly different. Michael Benchloss, who is a kind of history political person who works for NBC, MSNBC, PBS, had a really good uh, thread on on this. And I think it's important. Like this is this is a mainstream media guy. Like this is not coming from Antifa one six one on Twitter. This is like <laughs> coming from like like in terms of like mainstream media actually talking about this. Uh, quote: The new Italian P- uh, prime minister says that quote We will never be slaves at the mercy of financial speculators. Sounds just like nineteen thirties <laughs> in Italy and Germany. Uh, no thanks for the memories. Uh, Mussolini enjoyed publicly referring to Jewish people as financial speculators who needed to be controlled. When a fascist leader speaks, whether it be in Europe or America, never brush aside what you are hearing as meaningless rhetoric. Do not fail to learn from the history of the 1930s. History of the 1930s shows us that fascist leaders in the United States have been very eager to link us and pool resources, often in secret, with fascist leaders in Europe. Monitor carefully and beware, and please never take it at face value uh, when and if fascist leaders in America and Europe tell you that they have no personal or political animus towards Jews or other minority groups in society. Too many examples in history tells us the opposite. Unquote. So... That is like, you know, regular MSNBC, NBC people being like, hey, when she says this thing, oh, she means gosh. juice. <laughs> yeah. should, should, should we also talk about like the, 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 the way parts of like the left on Twitter reacted to this and also the sort of history of like how mean, some people were like, oh, wow, she's calling out the capitalists. It's like you guys um, are. Oh, like, no, I that's really not cannot, how that. I saw a lot of this. It's like you guys are maybe the dumbest yep. people who've ever lived. Like she immediately like axed the uh no she like this is the same thing we see with people like like dugan even right what she's saying she, she she's not saying that you know international capital is bad because it hurts the poor people or workers she's she's mad about it because it's a because it's a threat to traditional identities it's 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 a threat to the the way that you want the the idea of the the family it's the way it's 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 threatening all of these things that are about your like god family country brotherhood shit it's not about actual yeah. poor people working class people at all that's not that's not what it is it's it's not a good criticism of capitalist modernity just to just to propose another form of more like authoritarian capitalist modernity it's 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 not it's it's not good. Um, the original <laughs> yeah. fascists in in Italy did the same thing when they denounced like British um, plurocrats. It's ju- it's it's not it's not the it's not a good critique of capitalism. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. and, and we should point out too that like that, like so Matteo Salvini, who was like the the, the former like he ba- ba- basically until this election he was like the guy he was in charge of the right wing. Like he, he he's yeah. a guy who got like arrested basically for trying to sink a migrant boat, like. <laughs> So that's actually this guy's. He sucks. Um, and but he he would do this like sort of more explicitly. He he would you know like specifically use Marxist terminology to push right wing stuff. So he 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 had a, a speech where he talked about the, like the reserve army of labor, which is this concept of Marxism that's about like basically 
Marx is arguing that like like capitalism inherently produces this like quote unquote like reserve army of labor like industrial army of labor which is like an enormous mass of people who are unemployed who've been spit out of the labor process and you know okay and like in 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 in, like Marx is like Marx is pro these people which is a very important thing he's like these people are part of the proletariat but they've been spit out of like like the the capital wage relation has spit them out and they they yeah they're they're there to sort of like regulate. Like wages and stuff happens, but also there are people who've just been sort of like disenfranchised, et cetera, et cetera. Salvini, when he talks about the reserve army of labor, specifically is like, there is a reserve army of labor. Uh, these people are immigrants to North Africa, and like the the like the elites are like shipping these people into Italy to like destroy your jobs. And it, it is it is again very, very important that you understand this is what he like when he's using the Marx term, he is using it, he is using it Marx racism and not like yeah. Marx anti-capitalism. And you you need to be able to tell the difference between these two things because yeah like especially in Italian politics like this is this is a thing that happens like people people will use even like even literally explicitly stuff that is from Marx but they will use it to be like we need to like machine gun every like boat of small yeah, children yeah. trying to flee <laughs> Libya like it's like cherry yeah cherry picking these these bits of Marxism and then arranging them into a racist as fuck collage that you use to justify your bigotry. It, it, yeah. it, it's fascist. It did that the first time. It's doing it again. Then, and other thing that kind of, that is, that's notable in case people have not, have not seen it. There's been, uh, lots of video going around of, of Milani openly praising, um, uh, Mussolini saying, quote, I believe Mussolini was a good politician. Everything he did, he did for Italy. And there have been no other <laughs> politicians like him in the past 50 years. That now yeah. these interviews all come from the mid nineties. She has since said that, uh, her opinions on Mussolini have changed. <laughs> not she has not she has not said what her opinions have changed to yeah she's just saying that they have changed <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> but this was this was these interviews all come from uh when she was when she was a young plucky girl getting into the boys nazi club of and leading the youth wing of a fascist party founded by yeah. veterans of Mussolini's dictatorship um, since since her her own modern party, the Brothers of Italy, which was again started in 2014, emerged from the fascist National Alliance, which grew out of the Italian social movement, uh, which was founded by Mussolini regime officials. Um, and she still uses the same logo for her current Mario and Luigi, yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Brothers of Italy party. Um, so yeah, <sighs> let's have let's have one more ad break, and then we'll talk about how mainstream media has been talking about uh, the new girl boss Mussolini. And we are back. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. So we're actually going to talk. I'm, I'm first going to read some stuff from The Intercept, which is not, I would not say is actually mainstream media. Mm. It's a little bit outside of that, but it sets a good stage for the rest of the stuff that we will be talking about, which actually is dealing with how mainstream media has been framing uh, uh, Milani's uh, election. So, quote, the media got this right much of the time, giving predominant billing to Milani's far-right nationalism, but numerous English-language headlines focused solely on her being 
Italy's first woman prime minister. It's tempting to say that her position as a woman leader should be considered irrelevant, given her and her party's vile anti-immigrant nationalist, racist, anti-LGBTQ plus policies. But ignoring her womanhood misses some crucial points about her political ideology. Being a woman, a white woman, that is, is not in conflict with Milani's fascism. White supremacy has always relied on active enforcement by white women, especially when it comes to upholding racist, pro-nationalist narratives. So, yeah. I think that that's, that's, that's a good stage for kind of how every other headline and article we're going to talk about here. Uh, let's start with uh, The Guardian. The Guardian ran a piece saying, quote, the election of Italy's fascist adjacent uh, Georgia Milani is a public reminder that women can be just as awful as men. Uh, which is... <laughs> yeah. uh, that's a good headline. And this Wait, was, 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 this, was the Guardian US or the Guardian UK? This was the Guardian We're... UK. Interesting. Oh, wow. Yeah, yep. fascinating. Wow. And, and, there's, and, there's this, not... and this yeah, article was actually... the turf Guardian. And th- this this article was actually directly in opposition to Australia's uh, Sky News headline: uh, Georgia Milani is not a fascist. Um, this is <laughs> well, this, 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 <laughs> nice this Guardian article was just directly in, in opposition to this Sky News article, which is kind of funny. Um, uh, NPR's Morning Edition went with quote: "A far right group with neo fascist roots wins big in Italy's election." Um, a CBS Mornings host said Milani rejects the label of fascism while embracing its symbols. Just its symbols. Just its I mean, symbols. <laughs> no, it, like they were specifically talking about like the actual like iconography that they directly lift, like this, like the slogans, like brotherhood, God, country type things, and like like the, the logo. And it's, it's, it was actually part of a larger thing around uh, around fascism. We'll we'll actually get a bit more into that on our Tucker Carlson uh, section. Um, oh, good. The Washington Post headlined, quote, the mainstreaming of the West's far right is complete, and then opened that article with saying, in the land that invented fascism, the far right is back in power. Milani has a lengthy record of extremist rhetoric, has embraced the white supremacist narrative of the Great Replacement Theory, and has engaged in frequent dog whistling to a radical base. Uh, the Atlantic had a good piece titled, The Return of Fascism in Italy. Um, saying the Brothers of Italy, which Milani has led since 2014, has an underlying and sinister familiarity. The party formed a decade ago to carry on the spirit and legacy of the extreme right in Italy, which dates back to the Italian social movement. The party that formed in place of the National Fascist Party, which was banned after World War II. Now, just weeks before the 100th anniversary of the March on Rome, the October 1922nd event that put Mussolini in power, Italy may have a former uh, Italian social movement activist for its prime minister and a government rooted in fascism. So that's like overall, there was a lot of really good, like most of the of the extremely uh, referenced or viral kind of articles on this had decent headlines and decent content actually yeah, emphasizing I, yeah. the fascist nature. Now, it's funny because The Atlantic had this return of fascism in Italy one, but The Atlantic also ran an op-ed piece titled Milani's election win is not a vote for fascism, um, which later changed its title to Italians didn't exactly vote for fascism, um, which to its credit still discusses uh, Milani's links to fascism, but it questioned how much power she actually will have to enact said fascism. Um, 
so there was there was some like both sides in going on on some on a, a lot of these news outlets. They'll put one out, they'll put one piece out that's actually very good about centering the fascist rhetoric. Another one being like, "Eh, she may be a fascist, but it's not like she could do much, and she's a woman." <laughs> I, I I think this is kind of like, I think I think this is kind of a post J six thing. Like I I I I think if this had happened in like 2017 or 2018, I don't think the media would have been like as willing to just do this. I but absolutely I, that is I, that is yeah. undoubtedly true. Like, um, I think I think they kind of like like li- liberals in general kind of were shaken out of their complacency when their sort of like beautiful symbols were under like finally actually yeah. came under attack and not just like us. <laughs> Routers ran yes. a confusing headline titled nationalist milani set to smash italy's glass ceiling and become premier which is really it just just, it sounds super weird nationalist milani smashes glass ceiling it's just like it's like yeah i guess the copy has never been their strongest suit but it's 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 what that was one of the weirder headlines because it still has nationalist in it but it has the whole glass ceiling bit which is just like why there was a, another Guardian UK piece uh, that had the headline, uh, Italy's Giorgia Milani is no Mussolini, but she may be a Trump, which is an interesting article. Um, it it has some a lot of it's actually pretty reasonable uh, and it emphasizes her more recent comments trying to align herself more with the modern U.S. Republican Party rather than any kind of form of 1930s style fascism. Uh, quote, hawkish on foreign policies, orthodox on economic policies, nostalgic, nationalist, and inimical to civil liberties. This right-wing politics is illiberal at heart, but it would aim for respectability in what used to be called the establishment, including by not undermining the rule of law in the way that Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban has done, unquote. So there, it, it kind of, I, I do like the, there is uh, some things that are worth worth thinking about in terms of how she has a lot in the past year tried to align herself more with the modern Republican Party in the States, which still is, as we discuss in the show a lot, is kind of getting more fashy. Uh, I would say so. Um, Although I, I will say it is, it has, I don't know if you're going to talk about this, but it has been very funny. She she managed to sort of like lose like the like really hard line like American right wingers because she did some sort of like pro NATO y things. And so now there's like, like, so like, like Cernovich and a whole bunch of other people like that were posting about how like she's like an op and she was part of some. I don't I think, can't remember what I don't it even, was. I don't, I don't even think Cernovich even believes that because I, I don't, I don't, I've seen much more people be very enthusiastic about her than people being critical of her who are on like the fascist right in the States. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like there's, there was definitely was, especially like, there was a whole thing about her being like a member of the Aspen Institute that I think was happening for like a, I don't know maybe 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 it was just a thing like right after she got like elected. Uh, I don't I don't but, know. I mean yeah. On on kind of on this note of of her trying to align more with like modern United States conservatism. Um, in one of their newsletters, Politico included that uh, Milani has appeared at CPAC this past year and the National Prayer Breakfast. And uh, and it did it did join the Aspen Institute in 2020, uh, but she and Steve Bannon were filmed strategizing together as far back as 2018. And Bannon said of her back then, "quote You put a reasonable face on right wing populism, you will get elected." Um, 
So oh her and Bannon have been strategizing for years. She's at CPAC. Uh, this past year, she gave a speech there that uh, Tucker was very enthusiastic about in his segment about her. That Politico newsletter that included the bits about Bannon and CPAC also had, I think, this line, which sums up some of my thoughts on this. Quote, You've already read in dozens of headlines that Milani will be Italy's most far-right leader since Mussolini, but don't fall for the trap of reducing this far-right firebrand to simple labels like the Italian Donald Trump, or Viktor Orban, or Marine Le Pen. Global takeaway. Right-wing populism is getting smarter. It could have died off with Trump's election loss, or Boris Johnson's humiliating ejection from Downing Street, but that isn't happening. <sighs> so... I have, I have a few more I have a few more things here, which will lead into kind of how the right has been talking about this. Um, there was a CNN there was a CNN article on the victory that headlined uh, the conditions are perfect for a populist resurgence in Europe, uh, which also referenced the anti-immigration Sweden uh, Democrats who are expected to play a major role in the new government after winning the second largest share of seats in the general election last month. Uh, the party has been now mainstreamed. It initially had its roots in very strict neo-Nazism. Overall, I was less happy with some of the New York Times headlines uh, re relating to Milani's election. There was there was the the cheeky headline: Georgia Milani is extreme, but she's no tyrant, uh, which is of <laughs> again a weird way to frame a headline. Um, but even that piece still opens with this line saying, quote, it happened here again nearly 100 years since the March on Rome. Italy on Sunday voted in a right-wing coalition headed by a party directly descended from Mussolini's fascist regime. Mrs. Milani is the first post-fascist leader to win a national election in Italy after World War II, and her party is the heir to the Italian social movement, the reincarnation of the long-dissolved and constitutionally banned fascist party. So, weird headline, still it includes stuff in the article, but in the age of social media, and honestly on news media, headlines are way more important, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there was a, an, an actual New York Times article, not just, not just opinion piece, had the headline, uh, Milani wins voting in Italy and breakthrough for Europe's hard right. Another Times piece read, uh, Europe looks at Italy's Milani with caution and trepidation. Uh, Milani posed to be the country's first far-right leader since Mussolini. So, still, not the worst, not the best from the New York Times, which I mean, no, no shockers there. Um, now on to kind of the right. So, the right had a really big m mix of reactions based on how the left was talking and liberals were talking about this. There was a lot of enthusiasm coming from the right. A lot of people on the right questioning the fascist framing, being like, I can't believe... I know. <laughs> Megan, I mean, we can talk about the Megan McCain tweet. Everyone wants a woman in power until it's a conservative yes. woman in power. <laughs> this one Breitbart reporter said, quote, calling her Mussolini just because she's Italian is racist, which oh, is... Oh, yeah, this was one great. Of the best, one of the best <laughs> tweets about this. Lavern Spicer said, so everyone calls Melania fascist. Can anyone offer proof of that? And most people, mostly people just replied with videos of her praising Mussolini. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah then Twitter will ban you for the upside down Mussolini picture. Lauren Bobbert had the extremely oh, 
extremely bad tweet. Uh, this month, Sweden voted for a right-wing government. Now, Italy voted for a strong right-wing government. The entire world is beginning to understand that the woke left does nothing but destroy. Uh, November uh. 8. <laughs> November 8 is coming, and the USA will fix our House and Senate. Let freedom reign! Um, great, great <laughs> prowess there. Just, um, just shouting at clouds. But I, I, it is fresh. It is actually super messed up to be praising Sweden's new right wing government because they are pretty, pretty bad. The Wall Street Journal had the great headline: "Melania is no fascist, but can she revive Italy's economy?" Um, which nah, is, that's, <laughs> well, nah, that is perfect. That's it all, that, really is. Yeah, no, that's uh, classic. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very, I'm very excited. In about eight months, when the Italian economy is like. Like it makes the British economy look fucking great when the Wall Street yeah, Journal well, posts their turnaround. Like, can some other random person save Italy? Like that's they not yeah. saying Bolsonaro. much. Yeah, yeah. Like somebody further to the right, they'll just continue to be like, "Well, maybe it's good for the economy." The economy I have running in my Super Mario RPG game is better than the current UK economy. So again, it's not saying much. More on that later. A Fox News headline in the lead up to the election read, Italy on track to elect first right-wing prime minister since World War II. First female to hold office. Although I, I, really, I really do. This is one thing I really need to get, get people on. Like, is, is, is fucking Sylvia Berlusconi a joke to you? Like, the answer should be yes, but also like, come on, man. Like... Like that was in power forever. A few <laughs> days later, another Fox headline read, Milani's Italian election win renews spotlight on Europe's continued migrant woes. Great, great, great headline yeah, there. That's definitely what we should be focusing on. And so now on to a friend of the pod, Tucker Carlson. So on September 26th, Tucker Carlson ran a 15-minute segment titled, We Live in a Fake Democracy, and There Will Be a Revolution Like Italy. (laughs) So the segment was on the election of Milani and how she's daring to address the issues that voters really care about but aren't allowed to talk about, like the attacks on the family, immigration, the unpopular climate change policies that are ruining the economy. Aren't allowed to talk about. Berlusconi yeah. has literally been saying whatever the fuck comes into his brain for like 30 years at this point. No, that was that was a big thing of the Tucker segment was that voters have all these issues they care about, but they're not allowed to talk about it. It's actually illegal mm-hmm. in some places to talk about this. That's an actual quote from what he said. Um and obviously, Tucker obfuscated her links to Mussolini-style fascism while still praising the fascist rhetoric that Melania espouses. Here is a, uh, a clip from the segment. She's not the first person to say this. People have said it before, but she's just been rewarded for saying it. That's the point. The population likes it. This is what they actually want. They're not that worried about global warming. They don't want open borders. They think the woke stuff is absurd. They want to say what they think. And now it's obvious because she just won. And so even in this country, the people running and benefiting from a deeply corrupt and doomed system are hysterical. Watch the reaction to that. I want to start today by talking about a politician on the right who we should all be worried about, who's on the rise today. A politician who has brushed off accusations of fascism. What separates us from, let's say, Italy, who elected a, a fascist. 
She is from fascist roots. A far-right political party whose roots go back to post-World War II neo-fascist. A party that has its roots in Italian fascism. Its roots in Italian fascism. Define that for us, if you would, Joe Scarborough. Oh, sorry. You're an idiot. You can't. But the point is, fascist means unacceptable. Whatever this chick is saying, you're not allowed to agree with. They're very worried that that many Italians do agree with it. So she has to be completely unacceptable. Don't read further. She's a fascist. So, yeah, that's uh, that sucks. That's not great. Um, I... I, I don't need to waste any more time talking about t- Tucker's segment because it's it's typical t- t- Tucker Carlson stuff. Pretty fascistic, a, pretty awful. Start chanting but... Nuremberg at the end of every time he comes up <laughs> on episode. Anyway, um, so yeah, kind of the reaction was as one might expect. American right wing operatives have celebrated her rise to power. For example, Keith Roberts, head of the Heritage Foundation, drew on some of the uh, familiar kind of language in terms of. Uh, and I'll just I'll just say this. This is what he said about her victory on Twitter. This can be a trend. Conservatives everywhere need to define the choice as to what it is. Us versus them. Everyday people versus globalist elites who've yeah, shown is. they hate us. So familiar dog whistles and shit. But to kind of close this up, I'm actually gonna do a, I'm gonna do a guy debord quote. One of our favorite philosophers on this can show. Can we put a little French on it? Can we have Guy Debord? Guy Debord quote? Yeah. Uh, so okay. he, he wrote, the situations, the situations philosopher wrote this in 1968. Italy sums up the social contradictions of the entire world. As such, it is a laboratory for international counter-revolution. <laughs> um, <laughs> Hell yeah. So, Although, and, hilariously, they held out longer than the French did. So well, what 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 he's trying to say there is that it's a way to try out social change and try out the suppression of like progressive social change. Yeah. Um, and it's like yeah. a model for the rest of Europe. Um, like it, it's like it's, it's it's its own like miniature model that you can try out things and see how they'll react on a on a grounder European political scale. Um, and kind of ref. In in the in the vein of that, I'm actually going to do a quote from one of the Washington Post articles about what one one one, one of the better articles about uh, Milani to kind of uh, fin- fin- finish up the types of stuff that I wanted to talk about. So, if there's been one dominant story in Western politics over the past decade, it's that the far right is no longer beyond the pale. Indeed, it has taken over the right wing mainstream in many countries including, and arguably most significantly, the United States. In France, the far right has long been the leading force of the opposition. In Spain, it's also gained ground. In Sweden, a party originally founded by neo-Nazis and other right-wing extremists will now be the second largest faction in parliament. In Hungary and Poland, the far right is already in power. So, just in terms of this overall trend of how people are trying to mainstream far-right things and how they're getting more normalized across Europe, in the United States here, and the types of aesthetics that they're using to gain such ground. Because the Italian voters were not convinced by the left's attempts to paint Milani as a reincarnation of Mussolini. The way that she wrapped her fascism in contemporary U.S.-style conservatism was convincing, and the left did not offer any viable alternatives to fix the problems that the country is facing. So, she got 26% of the vote, which was enough to get a majority. 
so yeah, that's that's kind of that's most of the stuff I have on the girl boss Mussolini. Um, any any other any other uh, uh, comments on uh, how the right's been talking about this, how the liberals have been talking about this, how media has, or any anything at all before we close up? No, uh, I wish her the best of getting strung up in the street. Yeah, yeah. it is very yeah. funny to turn pictures of her upside down. Uh, people mm-hmm. will tell you it's not funny. It is funny. You know, I, I like the the 2020s seem to be turning into the 1920s, but like tragedy as farce version of it. But this means we can do it funnier. <laughs> we can we can do it funnier. We can all go to Italy wearing Mario costumes. Uh, that's right. We can we can do it. We can do it funnier. It's always mm-hmm. possible to be more funny. Mm-hmm. That's what we strive for. <laughs> so yeah, I'm still laughing about the Brothers of Italy thing. That's wow. That's pretty funny. Anyway, uh, go have fun fighting anthropomorphic lizards who steal the princess and hang her in a cage and go race around the Mushroom Kingdom on your way to save her with your brother. That is how I spend most of my free time. Yeah, in the Mushroom Kingdom? In the Mushroom Kingdom, Mm -hmm. uh, jumping on lizards, yeah. Yeah. Let's-a go. Let's-a go! Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. 
Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about how everything is falling apart. And today we are talking about how the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland is continuing to fall apart. Um, James, can I I say, great job. Nailed it. Thank you, buddy. Out of the park. You absolutely... Just mm-hmm. stunning work introducing this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I've bought the level of commitment that British people have brought to governing half of the world for centuries. I have my coffee cup that says, fuck it. And that, that's where we're at with this one. That's, uh, that's I, exactly what we wanted from you. Yeah, I'm incredibly sad uh, about the plight of my home country and continue to be so. But uh, I'm going to explain the reason for my sadness to Garrison and Chris and Robert today. One of the Hell reasons. Yeah. One of the reasons for my sadness. Uh, okay, so what I want to talk about today is Elizabeth Truss, Liz Truss. I want to talk about the British cost of living crisis, and I think more broadly, I want to talk about like how we consent to be governed by people who do not give a single fuck about our well-being. Well, now, James, that's an experience that only the British have, so... That's correct, yeah. It's it's notably not something that much of the uh, colonial periphery experienced for centuries. Yeah, Um, since we fought the the monarchy away, now we're free. Beat beat the monarchy, Garrison. Mm -hmm. That's a bold we, Garrison, from a Canadian. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's right. Your people tried to stop it. Yeah, yeah. That's All we did was invade you a couple of times. Don't think you can sneak in there and then the ambiguity of accents. I, My U.S. passport is on the way. On the way. On the uh-huh. way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so was the Queen of England's. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Liz Truss anyway. is going to come take that away. King Charles uh, is going to make it not allowed. Uh, I do have to get a new Canadian passport with the king on it now, which sucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I I, that was the... The most, I guess we all yeah. learned a lot because it's been so long yeah. since you had a change of monarch. Yeah. But the fact yeah. that everyone yeah. has shit. to stop using the money and everyone has so to get funny. new passports <laughs> is uh, fucking absurd. Yeah. Uh, this is the yeah. worst political system I've ever heard of. <laughs> Just wait, because it's going to get even more cursed. I mean, okay, yes. Chris, you live in Chicago. Yeah, but yeah, here's, the, yeah. here's the thing, here's the thing, right? In in Chicago, right? Everyone, everyone, like like to in in the core of their being, they know that the people who rule them are robbing them. Everyone in Britain actually genuinely like wants to be like this. No, nobody <laughs> no. in Chicago wants any of the people in Chicago who rule us to be ruling us, right? 
everyone in Britain is like pro, <laughs> like they they want no. to have to throw all their money away because some fucking ninety year old in a hat died. It's <laughs> it's an incomprehensible level of just oh yeah, uh, outstanding. Uh, yeah, it's a marvelous country. There's nothing wrong with it. It will continue to be marvelous. Um, the Lowest 10% of income people in Britain now enjoy a, a quality of life which is substantially lower than that same income bracket in Slovenia. Uh, which, <laughs> look, Yeah, the economic powerhouse yeah. of Slovenia. Yeah, yeah, I just want to say we do not deserve a better quality of living than the people of Slovenia. They no, because Slovenia actually fucked fucking up, so. rules. Yeah, it yeah. does. Great yeah, place. It, it, yeah, it's a really nice place. Uh, you Takes visit. about two hours to cross, but it's a great country. Yeah, right. You can ride your bike across it, but that's great. That's what you want to do. Well, I mean, what, mm-hmm. what's, what, what's happening here is that Maoist Liz Trust is like very slowly returning all the Brits <laughs> to the countryside. <laughs> she, she, yeah, she's uh, there. You go. She's doing a cultural revolution. Uh, let's talk about Maoist Liz Truss. So uh, her f- parents were actually a long way to her left. There was a thing a little while ago where her dad refused to campaign for her when she ran for a seat as a conservative, which is based. We have critical support for Liz Truss's dad. Her mum also ran as a Lib Dem, which is not exactly like the Liberal Democrats are not exactly like the party that are going to liberate the working class through uh, glorious revolution, but it's yeah. still. Pretty funny to have your mom running for a different party than you and like objectively amusing. Uh, she was born in Oxford. Her parents, are, her, her mother's a teacher. Her dad is an I academic, know. I think at Leeds. Her dad's, he's a mathematician. Uh, which oh, is, what a which, nerd. God <laughs> damn it. No, her dad is not the nerd here. Her dad is is the best trust as far as I can tell. Um, it, it's, it's Liz who we're worried about. Uh, she described her parents as being to the left of labor, which is not hard. Right, uh, Labour just exists to kind of these days really to have the, the pretense of opposition. <laughs> right, they've deliberately purged the left from Labour uh, after 2019, and they exist for Keir Starmer to say, "I broadly support this terrible neoliberal policy," but uh, and and then say something completely ineffectual. And I'm sure he will be prime minister soon, and nothing will change. Nothing that Liz Truss has done and is doing will be walked back because. Britain doesn't have an effective left opposition in Parliament. It does in society and in the streets, and, and we'll see there are lots of movements. Our Parliament is is a farce and continues to be a farce, and it's lots of dudes who went to the same educational institutions making this funny kind of noise. There are more diverse people in Parliament, but I'm sure people have seen videos of the British Parliament, right? And everyone is like... Bruh, bruh, and, when someone yeah, makes it, a point. it sounds just like that. That's yeah. It. yeah, that, yeah, that and, was a soundbite. Thanks, Daniel. Americans who don't understand entirely how <laughs> British educational culture works, the fancy yeah. schools that they go to, they're like Hogwarts if you replaced like the magic with kids beating each other in the shower and yeah, yeah, with repressed sexuality and, and yeah. yeah, yeah, violence, uh, bullying, and uh, being picked on because you're the poorest kid in a school full of rich. So kids. actually, it is it is a lot like Harry Potter. It is a lot like uh, Harry yeah, Potter. It's, yeah. it's actually, Potter, it's actually yeah. quite a bit like <laughs> Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There are still turfs. It's very disappointing. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, talking of educational institutions, Truss uh, went to Oxford, right? She went to Merton. I, I went to Oxford too. I didn't go to Merton. That's a better off college. I went to a college which is uh, renowned for being. Poor for what that's worth within Oxford colleges, which are all full of rich people doing rich people stuff. She read PPE, Politics, Philosophy and Economics, which I don't think you can really do as a degree in the US, right? No. Uh, what is that? Politics, Philosophy and Economics. What? That- yeah. Yeah, it's called PPE. Mm. Three made-up things. <laughs> <laughs> well, what are you saying? 
Uh, other other degrees, on the other hand, are real and tangible and, and exist yeah, of course. In, 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 the, in the physical space where you can touch them. Everyone uh, knows that. Yeah, it's true. Uh, apart from PPE. PPE is... So like I, I went to Oxford too. I took modern history and politics, which is way cooler and better in every way. But uh, the PPE kids, so, so that people understand, a vast number of British prime ministers have taken PPE as, as their undergraduate degree. It's like the kingmaker of degrees. And you take it because you're an insufferable fucking dork who wants to be prime minister or like work for the British government in some way, right? Like it is this like king maker. Well, who wouldn't want to be prime minister? It looks like such a good job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they last a long time. They have universally great approval ratings. And to be fair, they do just go on to grift a shit ton of money. Like it, it's yeah. not. A, and they don't have to do it for like a, a, a fixed period of time like American presidents do. So that's nice. They can just have a bunch of parties for their friends in the lockdown and then leave, which is more or less what Boris Johnson did. Uh, and I don't, I don't expect Liz to be prime minister for long, but it's what she's doing and what she has already sort of done that I think is of interest here. Incidentally, she was also president before we get off her university time of the Oxford University Liberal Democrats. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> oh no, yeah, great. yeah, great stuff. Um, the uh, so like she's gradually drifted to the right, which uh, you know. What are we? What we? Uh, she's grifted to the right. You know, the Lib Dems were a little bit more left then, but uh, Labour was very neoliberal in the nineties, right when she was in um, when she was in Parliament. So sometimes the Lib Dems provided something of a left opposition. Uh, if you remember, like Tony Blair, New Labour, it was just kind of uh, bold neoliberal, like shameless neoliberalism, right? Now uh, Tony Blair is the one who was played by Hugh Grant, right? Is he the one? Is he the inspiration for Love Actually? I I, I was assuming because yeah. Tony no, Blair because was the only British politician I could name as a child. Okay, yeah, but so he must so. have been right. No, because Tony Blair is completely devoid of charisma, and uh, the one thing that that Hugh Grant character has is is charisma. So maybe maybe he does kind of. I mean, they're all white men. <laughs> like they, are all, say, they, they are all white say, men. That is he, a very white movie. He looks like him, uh, but then that's not exactly a remarkable thing, is it? In this, this yeah. sort of uh, homogenous British ruling class that we have. So. Uh, Truss has gone through like being Secretary of State for Justice, through being Lord Chancellor, uh, through being Foreign Secretary. God, okay, Lord Chancellor is a pretty cool sounding title. Mm-hmm. I gotta give it to him. First, that's, wa- that's like Star Wars shit. Wait, do, 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 yeah. do they have a Shadow Lord Chancellor too? Yes, the thing that your <laughs> yeah, people have do get right is they pick the terms to make it all sound cool. Like it, whenever one of like your parliamentary coalitions collapse, they're like, the government has fallen. <laughs> yeah. it, it just makes it all sound like it's so much yeah. cooler than it is. <laughs> it does lend an air of Shakespearean epic where it's what yeah. it is, is these 17 people who all went to the same schools and read the same Telegraph newspaper columnists have disagreed with each other over a minor point and will shortly be reconstituting their alliance in a slightly different way. Yeah, but it sounds like people are fighting each other with machetes in the center <laughs> yeah. of London. <laughs> yeah, it has a Game of Thrones beheading vibe. Yeah. Which, which, uh, <laughs> may, may, maybe that's where this is heading. Who knows? Uh, she, I think if people had heard of Liz Truss until she became prime minister, it was probably from her really wonderful pork market speech, which uh, if you haven't watched the pork market speech, is a study in when you should and shouldn't pause for applause. Uh, Robert, have you seen this pork markets? No, no. Okay, here, I don't, what go. is a fucking pork market? God, first? it's so <laughs> funny. In December, I'll be in Beijing, opening up new pork markets. 
What the fuck is this shit? <laughs> she, she's not a real person. She, yeah, it's, yeah. It, it, it's, it's reminiscent of like when you take a fish out of water and it moves its lips but makes no coherent noise. Like it's that. like an alien trying to pretend to be human. Yeah, it's it's yeah. This wrong. is a great. This is a great leader of our people. And it's like the uncanny valley of politics. It is a little bit yeah, like it, it is almost Lovecraftian in its in its unsettlingness. Well, okay, yeah, what, what, yeah, what's, right. What's, what's what's happening here? What we're seeing is a, what, this is this is the res, this is the final result of affirmative action for white people. Yes, we're gonna get like, into that. This is why this is why she has this job. She 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 benefited from affirmative action for white people. Uh, other examples of this include Destiny. And yeah, you get the same kind of person every single time. Same, same, right? Like Destiny and the Prime Minister of the UK. Um, yep. Yeah, so like she becomes Prime Minister and it's worth noting that like uh, the way you become Prime Minister in the UK is different to the way you become President in the US, right? You, you are the leader of the majority party in Parliament or of the coalition that controls the majority of the votes in Parliament. So she becomes Prime Minister not through a vote of the people, but through a vote of the members of the Conservative Party. Um, you can understand as like people whose dogs have girls' names and whose daughters have dogs' names. Uh, like, <laughs> <laughs> that is, I think that's a trash future bit. I don't know where it came from, but it, it explains them perfectly. Uh, so these people got together and they she ran against Rishi Sunak right and who, who is eminently more capable of doing the fashy neoliberal shit that they want to do as are many other people of color within their party but above all things they are racist right above even doing this kind of speed run extraction from the british economy they are still racist uh, they they're, they're fine with having people of color in in positions in the hierarchy, right? That's something that Britain established through hundreds of years of empire. But the idea, the idea of having someone in a leadership position is is fundamentally anathema to the Conservative Party. So instead, they picked kind of uh, uh, Liz Truss to just flap her lips around and uh, and talk about pork markets, right? So that's how we get Liz Truss as prime minister. So no one per se votes for Liz Truss. No one even per se votes for like the Liz Truss agenda that we're seeing now, right? Um, and I think that's really important. And in her acceptance speech, she talks to Boris Johnson. Uh, she says, you're, you're admired from Kiev to Carlisle. Uh, what? Yeah. It, uh, uh, she what? Says, yeah. Okay. First of all... <laughs> Bizarre. Absolutely. The one fucking... thing I know about Boris yeah. Johnson is that yeah. he looks like Donald Trump if Trump didn't have his shit quite so together. Yes. Yeah. He looks like Donald Trump whose mum didn't tell him to comb his hair yeah. and tuck his shirt before he went to school. Yeah. If Donald Trump couldn't have paid to have, pay to have people like check him before he walks out the door, that's how he would look. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. If he fell over in a wind tunnel, he would look like <laughs> Boris Johnson. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Boris Johnson, a guy so fucking rich he's never had to comb his hair, stopped being prime minister because of these scandals, right? These sleaze scandals about them having parties during lockdown, more or less. That was what destroyed him. Not any of his terrible policies, his bigoted bullshit. Him writing op-ed saying that the problem with us was not that we were in charge of Africa, but that we're not anymore. Uh, was Good one of God. His, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a type of guy who exists and can become prime minister. Like, people don't understand, I think... Um, British, the British right is very different from the American right. And I think we're going to get into that. Um, also, a guy who famously just like pulverized a small child on a trip to Japan uh, play, playing rugby. <laughs> okay, which... you don't need to say the things that he did that are rad. <laughs> yeah, he, 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 he did finally discover the actual third rail of British politics, which is that 
if if you have fun in a way that someone else can't have fun, they will destroy you. Yes, like yeah. the, the the mere British per- the mere act of a British person seeing another person having <laughs> any joy whatsoever, like just like the the, the so, so like, a, a switch flips in their brain and they just turn into like brits but worse (laughs) this is yeah so this is like there are basically two ways a british political party can be right one is that they enjoy themselves while they're plundering the institutions that still remain in the united kingdom and the other one is that they are like monastically abstemious while they're doing it right and labor tend to be the abstemious ones uh and the tories tend to be the ones who drink the port and have the lockdown parties and have like literal karaoke events when they're asking people not to go to their grandparents funerals uh, and, and labor tend to be the ones who wring their hands to go oh no uh and then fundamentally do the same shit right that that is a yeah. difference chris is entirely correct that that is uh the thing that irritates british people most right and maybe we'll just talk about this right now it's increasingly like it's not the material conditions that bring down british governments because material conditions are getting worse and have been getting worse since we started this this austerity stuff in 2010 it, it's these stupid scandals right these these personal scandals which yes normally involve them having too much fun when they're supposed to be pretending to be serious while they steal all the all the things that still remain in Britain. Um, and I want to talk about that a little later. So yeah, she said Boris Johnson was admired from Kiev to Carlisle. Uh, he's not. That's why he's not prime minister anymore. Everyone fucking hates him. Uh, and also, I don't think she's been to Carlisle because I got family who live there. and Not everyone loves Boris Johnson there. Um, and I'm sure not in Kiev either. Uh, but... So the UK has been having this cost of living crisis since the economy reopened in 2021, right? Since the end of lockdown. Uh, uh, what this cost of living crisis is, what, it, what a cost of living crisis is generally, is that when uh, the goods that you need to buy to exist are rising more quickly than the wages you get paid for working. Uh, now, some of these causes are global, right? We have this inflation issue in the US too. Uh, but the UK has compounded this by leaving the European Union, that creating massive Labor, so- labor shortages and these repeated bumps in the energy price cap, right? Which is the limit that an average family should pay for their energy consumption. It's not, it's not a hard stop. It's not a limit on like how much you definitely will pay, but it, it's a limit on how much the average family should pay, right? Um, so trust comes to power in the context of skyrocketing energy rates for British consumers. Right? Uh, gas is used for heating most homes in the UK um, and it's increased uh, 926% in price since the before the coronavirus times. Uh, despite the fact that most British people don't pay spot prices for gas, so they don't pay the, the, the going market rate for gas, uh, there's a serious crisis in affordability. Now, it was looking like the that gas bills were going to go up into the average gas bill for the average British person was going to go up more than it now is because Trust has has announced some capping of spot rates. We're going to get into why that isn't as great as it sounds. The big issue here is that Britain doesn't have a nationalized provider, right? It it's privatized its energy grid, it's privatized its energy generation, and it ends up with this bizarre situation where. One of the one of the people you can buy energy off, and often you don't have a choice, right? Depending on where you are, um, is the French National Energy Company. That makes and, sense. Sure, yeah, it makes perfect sense, right? It's it's great. And uh, one of the notable sort of consequences of this is that gas prices have gone up. France caps the prices that consumers can pay. Britain allows them to charge a lot more. So British people at this 
it's as a rule, one thing that British so people dislike. So you're telling me that France finally won that long war? Yes, I'm saying <laughs> that we have been owned by the French, and uh, if that doesn't bring down the Conservative government, I don't know what will. Because there's one thing British people dislike: it's French people. Um, and so, yeah, Britain is now subsidizing energy rates for French consumers, which is great, <laughs> having just left the European Union because we are uh, incredibly xenophobic as a nation, as it turns out. And, and people may have seen this uh, UK TV show called This Morning, where they did a Wheel of Fortune type thing where you could win a thousand pound. Oh, God, that they, was brutal. Or they will pay your energy bills. Yeah, but yeah. for like three or four months, right? Yeah. Four months, four months of energy bills. And uh, the bloke they're doing it in is just like it's this sigh of relief when he gets energy bills, right? And he's like, oh, massive! Like I'm gonna have my energy bills pay for four months. It's such a relief. Um, and this guy is one of four million people in the UK who uses what's called a prepayment meter, uh, which I'm reliably informed that Americans don't have. So, do you do you all uh, are you familiar with the concept of prepayment meters? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, so maybe people are familiar with like pay-as-you-go phones, right? Where you go to the shop yes, and you, you yes. buy the credit. Yeah. yeah. If you if you're like selling drugs or you're 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 engaged yeah. in mm-hmm. anti-government extremism, yeah, you want you <laughs> want a phone like that, sure. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or if you're doing journalism, you might want one for legitimate journalism reasons. Yeah. It's the same as one of the others. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes, true. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. Here at Cool Zone Media, uh, you know, you know, you know who won't use a prepaid cell phone to sell you drugs because they're not. Wait, yeah, they would. You think so? I think they just got enough money. They they would just no. use a regular phone bill and have a lawyer just do. No, with. I think I think they're deep into Boost Mobile. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's the only yeah, thing yeah, keeping yeah. John Law off their fucking back. <laughs> yeah. okay, so you know who has to go to Walmart to buy more credit to their phone so they can sell you some weed? It's the advertisers who support this show okay we're back and we are talking about prepaid energy meters a scintillating topic so the a prepaid energy meter right you have to go out you have to pay for your energy so if, if your rates go the reason for these overwhelmingly is that like there's a agreement by which most energy suppliers won't just cut you off in the uk sure. like if you have old people in your house you have children in your house uh, like they, they have to do this the appearance of caring is this thing that we're going to see is really important in lots of these policies, right? So they, they can't cut you off, but if they have if you have a meter and you can't prepay for the electricity, then you're de facto cut off, right? And the best statistics right. I could find about this was in 2017, where roughly 140,000 households, 16% of, the, of those that had prepayment meters, self-disconnected, self-disconnected is the euphemism for they couldn't pay, right? For gas or electricity in 2017, they couldn't afford to add credit to their meter, right? And they didn't have the credit, so they couldn't get the electricity. So they, they end up disconnecting. And if you add to this that the British houses are made out of cheese, like our houses are very poorly insulated for the most part, right? They're, they're often single brick. So it, it's expensive to heat them and they get cold in the winter and they get hot in the summer. We're not, we don't have like houses that are designed to deal with the extremes in temperature, which we are now experiencing because we have ruined the climate. So people are spending more and more, using more and more electricity and gas to heat their homes. It's costing more and more, and increasingly they can't afford to pay it, right? And, and this will lead to people dying. Uh, so if we look at like what the average pensioner in the UK, right? I looked up some uh, statistics for the Office of National Statistics here. 
The average pensioner in the UK has on a fixed income, it's making £17,000 a year. Nice. I guess £17,000 of what, though? Oh, they're gold, Robert, gold. You take your pound to the Bank of England and they give you gold in return. Uh, Okay. Not not anymore. Uh, That actually, interestingly, was, uh, if if we go on a side note for a minute, uh, one of the ways Britain achieved greater democratization when the middle class were excluded but landowners were included was that the middle class had cash money and the landowners had wealth in the form of property, right? So the middle class threatened to tank the entire Bank of England by taking all their pound notes and asking to have them converted to, to the gold that they that they were supposedly pegged to, and there was not enough gold to actually uh, to do that for the entire money supply, so they could have tanked the, the Bank of England. Uh, so yeah, bit of bit of eighteen sixty eight Reform Act history. Uh, they're no longer they're decoupled now from that, so you can't do that sadly. Uh, but seventeen thousand pound is not a lot of money, right? Um, Trust has just announced that the energy bill for an average family. Is going to be capped at two thousand five hundred pound a year, which is, is a decent chunk of your income, right? If you're making seventeen thousand. Uh, before that, the previous plan limit had been three thousand five hundred forty nine pounds for an average family based on average consumption, uh, which is a, a very significant chunk of your seventeen thousand pound a year, right? Especially if 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 you're renting on top of that, right? The cost of housing, the cost of rental housing has gone up in the UK, and um, so, and this is. Arise again, the cap had already been risen in April, right? It's not a price cap, right? This doesn't mean that you as a family are guaranteed that you will not pay more than this £2,500 number. Uh, What it is, it's a unit cost limit. So not all families are typical, not all homes are typical, uh, but the cost uh, is, for those who are interested, 10 pence per kilowatt hour for gas, 34 pence per kilowatt hour for electricity. So what this means is that, like, We've capped a little bit of the cost, uh, and in response, like, and this is pretty, uh, this is pretty typical of what the conservatives do, right? They'll do this thing where they give the appearance of caring, and then at the same time they bundle it in with a bunch of incredibly, like, uh, just like the the best way to understand these people is that they view the free market as a religion, right? So, uh, and they believe that like the only way out of anything is to cut taxes. Whether they actually believe that because they think it will genuinely make the situation better or they're just trying to get as much as they can for them and theirs. I think it, it probably, I'm, I'm leaning towards uh, the second one, right? But uh, so she bundles this with, uh, the, the UK is gonna, gonna lift its ban on fracking, right? Um, the UK banned fracking in 2019 after a series of earth tremors near Blackpool. <laughs> Which like there's a lot of cursed things about Britain, but until recently we hadn't added earthquakes to that list. So thank you, Liz. Uh, they uh, it, it's very funny. Uh, Warwick Business School published a study in 2020 pointing out uh, it is widely widely recognised that the open and liberal nature of the UK's gas market means that the market price, the national balancing point, is unlikely to be influenced by shale gas development. So shale gas is fracking right in the UK. So. The UK is going to start fracking, which is great. Um, she also proposed removing the top tier of income tax, uh, which is reducing the amount of tax paid by people who earn more than £150,000 a year. Right now, they pay 45% tax above that. Uh, this announcement caused the pound to fall to a historic low against the dollar. Uh, and for Trust to find herself in open beef with the uh, the woke scolds at the IMF. So uh, the IMF said... 
New economic measures laid out by the UK government will likely increase inequality. And they added that the IMF does not recommend large and untargeted fiscal packages at this juncture. So she also, during this, like she, uh, she promised that she was going to cancel a planned rise on corporate tax and scrap a proposed cap on bankers' bonuses. This has been one of her big uh, policy things, along with Simon Clark, who, who declared a new age of austerity uh, at, at the time they announced this, right? But there's this constant, like everything Britain does, there's only one way in which conservative governments to move, can move, and that is taxing the other people who went to the same schools and universities as them less. Um, so I kind of want to take a step back here and talk about the ideology that underpins a lot of what Truss is doing and... And it's that she and Chancellor Exchequer Kwasi Kwarteng and Priti Patel and Dominic Raab, uh, who are all in her cabinet, I think, are part of this free enterprise group within the Conservative Party. And, and much like you have caucuses in the American Senate, in Britain we have these, these groups, uh, and they wrote this book called Britannia Unchained, which I don't know if people are probably not familiar with, right? I've heard of it, but I know very little about it. Yeah, it's just like a um, it's a series of short essays, just like doing a Milton Friedman, like an unreconstructed free market fundamentalism. That it's it's very different to what the because the American right likes to talk about markets and libertarianism and stuff, right? But like in general, their entire politics is just kind of uh, owning the libs, right? Like these socio cultural grievances, and then when they get in power, they they their spending is largely just about one might argue, staying in power, right? And whereas the Conservatives in Britain are genuinely committed to slashing government, uh, including slashing services, including slashing uh, any kind of social safety net, right? It does have these amusing consequences sometimes, like uh, Britain continually cuts the number of police it has, which is great. Oh, yeah, and it's so- <laughs> genuinely really funny. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very funny. It's very funny that like our most right-wing party, I, mean, I guess not our most right-wing party, if you've got some proper nutters, but... Uh, We've defunded the police just by not wanting to spend money on them. Yeah, uh, it, 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 it is also uh, okay. And by by funny, I mean incredibly depressing. That like like Cor- Corbin was running on adding more cops, which is like yes. the most cursed. Like the the, the British left like always fu- like they they, they <laughs> always find a way to destroy themselves. That they've been doing this for like two hundred years. It's it's really impressive stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's incredibly uh, it's incredibly depressing to watch. Like, uh, yes, the British left just tear itself to pieces. Not that the American left doesn't tear itself to pieces, right? It seems to be a thing on the left. But yeah, when the British left had a serious run at making a serious difference in twenty nineteen, <laughs> instead we decided to just absolutely like tear each other to shreds. And and here we are, right? Uh, here we are with um, the number of uh, children in poverty going up by 600,000 uh, in since 2012 uh, with the uh, number of from 2019 to 2012 the number of children who rely on food banks for their food security has tripled by the end of this year the national health service the national health service which is, is our nationalized socialized medicine system right uh, the budget will have been cut by 24% compared to 2016 uh, that's despite the fact that we just went through a pandemic uh, the <laughs> poorer socioeconomic groups in the UK are experiencing a fall in life expectancy for the first like we 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 have life expectancy has pretty much continually trucked up since the industrial revolution but we're now finally slashing that down again uh, oh, I wonder I wonder why yeah it, 
it, it, there's no way of explaining it. There's, it's just happening. Uh, it, 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 the only solution is uh, a free market, a freer market. A freer market, yeah, to pump more things into the air, yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. And meanwhile, yeah, yeah. here, I'm going to take a puff from my inhaler because my lungs are dying. Yeah, well, yeah, that's the because... the pollen is outrageous right now. You're not getting fracked hard enough in, in uh, the Pacific Yeah, Northwest. more fracking will fix, my, will <laughs> yeah, fix the yeah. pollution and air quality. The fact, the fact that people are... Uh, literally dying yeah younger than their, their parents did and um, the tories don't they have these like they've, it, what's very important to them is a, the p- performance of patrician care right like we saw this with uh theresa may's burning injustices which of course remain burning injustices because you didn't do anything about them uh boris johnson's leveling up agenda are people familiar with oh his my like god I, I can't believe you have a minister. You have a shadow minister of leveling up. <laughs> yes, like, we do. I just like. I, at, at, at what point do you just go? None of this is real. And like, <laughs> yeah. if they start sending cops, you just keep beating them up until everyone else is forced to concede that they're like, no, there is not in fact a shadow, a, a shadow minister of leveling up. Yeah. Oh. I don't know. That is the uh, the big the big question that I want to ask is at what point do we realize that there is not a shadow minister of leveling up and that we don't have to open new pork markets and that maybe that isn't the solution to us dying younger than our parents and that we don't have to do what these people say when they are just very blatantly like Truss is very obviously doing like an extractive speed run on the British economy, right? They're um, I tell you what, you know who else uh, will do an expected street run on the British economy? Is it the products and services that's yeah. the show? It is, sadly. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. We're talking about extracted speed runs. We're back. Uh, so with Johnson and even with, with Theresa May, right, who was the prime minister before him, there was this important performance of of caring, right? Being like, oh, we're going to make life better for the, the poorer socioeconomic groups the poorer people in the UK. I think what's changed is that like the nature of, of consent from the governed is, is this thing that maybe we need to elucidate more, right? Like in, in Britain, there was this kind of consensus that like the, the governing party would pretend to care and would pretend to do things. And sometimes they would let you have nice things, right? Little treats and trinkets. And that in return, you would largely not kick them out, right? Like either physically or electorally, although it's very hard to kick them out electorally because of Britain's ass backwards electoral system, which is another relic of a previous era. Now they don't seem to be bothering to pretend to care, right? Like when you're looking at a system in which, like when trust came to power, old people were going to die. We, we, we were looking at a system in which people are dying younger than their parents and old people were going to die in the cold this winter. Like I've got friends I remember this was years ago, uh, but it was when utility prices maybe started going up when my grandfather passed, my grandmother lived on her own and her being really afraid to heat the house because of how much it cost, right? And I've got friends who I've spoken to this time who are like, well, we're preparing to have our grand come and live with us so that we can uh, we can heat the house. Or like if we just move into the downstairs parts of the house, then we can keep those warm, right? Or like... Uh, you know, we're going to go back to having fires and we'll just go, we'll, we'll warm our house with a wood fire, right? Lots of houses in the UK still have fireplaces that are oh, functional. No. Yeah. My, my house growing up was heated with a wood fire. It's great. It's good for the lungs. It's, it gives them a good coating that they can then use in the rest of your life to repel other pollutants. Coal fires are great inside the home. Highly encouraged. Uh, so like people were really making these like, I don't know. It, it's, 
it's uh, it's the sort of stuff you you associate maybe with like a, like the hard times in the Soviet Union, right? Like like sort of being like, oh, well, we're going to go to the food bank and we'll line up and get food, and then we'll uh, we'll all huddle in one room to stay warm. But these are the plans that people were making like this this summer, looking to this winter, and Liz Trust responded to that with like, okay, well, the way to fix this is lower taxes for high earners and no cap, but removing the cap on bankers' bonuses so that the financial services industry will relocate to the UK, which it won't because the UK has left the European Union, right? And it's now kind of a pariah in that sense. So like, I don't really understand how the UK, how the British government obtains consent from the governed anymore. And I, I'm partially interested to see how this goes and partially, obviously, like appalled to see the costs of this. Like, they're not even trying to care. They're not even pretending anymore. They're just going to take what they can and then presumably bounce to some tax island where they can uh, they can survive and thrive while the rest of us freeze our asses off over the winter. So what I want to, um, I guess, finish up with is this idea that, like, so in America, you have fixed terms of elections, right? So every we're having uh, midterms next month, and then we'll have the presidential. In Britain, we don't, right? In Britain, the the government has to lose a vote of no confidence, which is when the majority of MPs vote they no longer have confidence in the government. Or uh, the prime minister have to, well, in theory, the, the monarch has to call an election, right? Uh, so I guess King Charles could just, uh, because they didn't let King Charles go to the climate summit recently. <laughs> Uh, which is another amazing thing that Liz Truss has managed to do within like a month of being in office. She's already like openly in beef with the monarchy, which uh, is, is the one thing that conservative people might like more than uh, white people who tax rich people less. She wouldn't let King Charles go to a, a climate summit uh, because conservatives are more or less climate change deniers uh, or at least sort of climate change don't give a fuck because we need to extract more money. Um, so like... At some point, like, I don't know what the withdrawal of consent looks like anymore, right? It, it's the people who uh, British politicians see themselves, like, see themselves as governing for, like, their constituents are seemingly, like, columnists in The Telegraph and the people who are the CEOs of these big companies in London, which have grown and grown and grown and grown based on this endless supply of free money that is now drying up, right? So instead of dealing with the root cause of that, they're going to try and look at other ways for those people to continue to to grow and extract finance and i don't know what that means for the rest of british people like i don't know what the withdrawal of consent from a system which so obviously doesn't care about the material conditions you live in looks like but if we want to talk about collapse and collapse is a thing that gradually happens rather than a thing that kind of we click our fingers and it's there I think some of this is what it looks like. Like people refusing to pay their power bills is becoming a thing in UK, right? I should mention that energy companies are recording record profits throughout this time period. Maybe it looks like protest in the street. The Britain has had these, like they had big tuition fees protests. We had the quote unquote London riots, right? Which were incredibly harshly put down and people went to jail for a long time for like stealing a bottle of water from a Tesco. So like... I think it's worth watching for people who are not in the UK. Like, what does it look like when your governing elite stop pretending to care about you? And what does the withdrawal of legitimacy or the withdrawal of consent look like? And like I say, I don't know. It, it's looked different every time it's happened, right? It looked different in the Soviet Union to uh, the way it looked in like 
I'm trying to think of other like, like regime collapses in South America. Um, but like we say that a we say that a, a regime is consolidated when the rules of the game are more important than the outcome of the game. And I think we're getting to a point in Britain where maybe the outcome of the game is going to be more important than the rules of the game. So that might mean some serious change. It might not. It might just mean, you know, we put a new dude on our, on our coins and everyone puts bunting up industry and uh, we do nothing fundamentally different and just acquiesce in, in living conditions getting worse and worse and worse and more and more people dying because they're poor. I don't know, but yeah, <laughs> Garrison's just nodding. Uh, but yeah, I th- yeah. I th- I think that last one's going to be the one that happens. Yeah, yeah. maybe. Yeah. We'll do it Olympics and we'll spend the next, what was London 2012, the next decade just reminiscing over how great that was. Um, and, and then we'll just not notice that, you know, our, our grandparents are dying unnecessarily because Liz Truss's friends have to make more money. I, 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 have, I have an enormous amount of faith in the British people to just do nothing. Like, they, they, <laughs> they, 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 have, they have an unbelievable ability to just be like, eh, things are getting worse like i don't know who cares like we're still british like they like they 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 can't even really effectively do imperialism anymore but it's like everyone's so wedded to the like imperialism machine that everyone that like you know everyone every everyone will constantly vote against their class interests everyone will constantly act against their class interests everyone will constantly just sort of like literally let hundreds of thousands of people die around them yeah yeah mm-hmm. because flags and sports i think corbyn has an energized a lot of people into realizing their class interests perhaps more than they were before because there was briefly a parliamentary alternative but right now there isn't like keir starmer is not jeremy corbyn but then you know but it's also the british right like it's like well okay so they they, they sort of reconsolidated the left it did nothing got mm-hmm. owned and then imploded and now it's being split between like just complete pure like People arguing that Starmer is doing socialism, like like pure <laughs> Labour Party hacks, and then yeah. like a bunch of people just doing nothing because it's the UK and it fundamentally never gets any better. Yeah, yeah. There is like I take a little bit of hope from like. Have you seen the uh, the um, where people are, are to be deported from the UK and then there are like mass mobilizations to prevent yeah, those that are really happening? Cool. Yeah, that gives me some hope, right? That's a lot of people willing to give up their Saturday or their Sunday to shout at immigration officers. And like, uh, that's something that didn't happen by and large in the in the US, right? Even with the uh, the, the like gross abuses of the immigration system under Donald Trump. Like people, people didn't stop that happening. So some of that stuff—it it, 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 it did happen in places. Like there were a lot of flights that got blocked and stuff. Yeah, I guess. Like, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, was it happened sort of in less a, visible than. Yeah, in a different way. Some people here did. Uh, so, like in 2020, I think there was an ice thing in Barrio Logan, and it got run out of town. So I shouldn't say that. Um, but that gives me hope. It, it gives me hope that maybe some people will realize that like the, the sol- solution is not to vote harder, right? And. The solution is to is to organize and, and to do things in an extra parliamentary fashion and not trust the people who are participating in your exploitation to live you from your exploitation, which has maybe been our mistake for too long. Yeah. yeah. We, we we everyone in England needs to take a page from the Harry Potter books and arm the children to murder government officials. If yeah, I'm remembering form, how those books ended properly. Form 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 mm. a form a guerrilla army of you and your friends yeah. and attempt to overthrow the government. Yeah, is that what murder... happens in Harry Potter? Probably. Yeah, yeah let's let's yeah, that's, say that's, 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 yeah, that, that, okay. that's, that's yeah. the plot of the Order of the Phoenix. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. I remember it now when they uh yeah, when they do a car bomb. Yeah. That's it. 
that's a, that's a, <laughs> that's our message for you today. <laughs> Read Harry Potter to a car bomb. There we go. There we go. That's our legally binding message for you today. Mm-hmm. Non-actionable threat. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X visit tomboyx.com. Bean dad, the dress 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online and Hey, I do too. 16th minute of fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.